The following movie has been rated PG by the Motion Picture Association of America. Parental guidance is suggested. Hello and welcome back to Metamodernism. There's been a lot happening out in the world, so I hope you're doing well. Yesterday wrapped up day two of a virtual Vaporwave music festival streamed live on the internet. All the major players in a virtual reality of computer-generated images and music celebrating the artistry of the Vaporwave community. It was the culmination of nearly a decade's worth of music and art, and now the video stream of the festival will live on in digital perpetuity. It's a good jumping off point for the uninitiated, so I'll be linking to it in the notes. Today on the show, we have the hilarious and talented Cole Stratton. You may know him as one of the founders of SS Sketchfest, or from his fantastic podcast, Pop My Culture. He is a veritable treasure trove of pop culture knowledge and wears his love of comedy and movies on his sleeve. So I was excited to open up the Golden Age collection for him and talk about the movies that influenced him. Coming up on the show, he and I chat about growing up in Michigan, our love of 80s movies, and we peek behind the curtain of what goes into running a legendary comedy festival. But first, a bit of follow-up. Due to the fact that it's taking longer than expected to produce these episodes, I've not had the chance to discuss some of the newsworthy stories in the last month or so. In my previous episode, Adrian and I discussed the pitfalls of a streaming service being the only place to access a show. Adrian had mentioned that if you don't own a copy of your favorite show, the streaming services can alter and remove content at their discretion. Not long after our conversation, the historical revisionism happened and it happened fast. HBO Max launched with and then quickly removed Gone with the Wind before finally putting it back up again, this time with an introduction explaining the historical context. A season nine episode of The Office was edited rather than pulled from streaming altogether, but other shows were not spared this fate. Just to name a few, five episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, four episodes of 30 Rock, three episodes of Scrubs, one episode of Community, and one episode of With Bob and David have all been removed from streaming services and digital outlets, effectively removing all traces of them online. As a white guy, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I have anything of value to add to the national conversation going on about race and police brutality. However, I do not think that erasing these episodes from existence solves any issues regarding racial tension. Revising and deleting culture does not erase the mistakes made in the past, but it does prevent future generations from learning from them. If these episodes are viewed as racially insensitive when looked at through a modern lens, then these episodes serve as a cultural artifact of the recent past to show how far we've progressed as a society in terms of what we deem acceptable. Therefore, in an effort to preserve television history, I will not be removing these episodes from the Golden Age collection, not because I necessarily agree with the messages they offer, but because I believe in learning from our history. Rather than scrub all traces of these episodes from the internet, we should turn this into a teachable moment by fostering a discussion for audiences of the future to learn about our past, even when it isn't pretty. If there's one thing I know about comedy, it's that it's not static. It evolves and changes over time to adapt to modern tastes and continues to push the boundaries of what's considered to be funny. Sometimes, in retrospect, the things considered funny at one point in time 
are now seen as insensitive or tone deaf. When that happens, our culture tends to grow and change as a response. This ebb and flow is what allows us to trace our culture's history through media studies. That's one of the reasons I founded the Golden Age Collection, to serve as a place to trace the history of our culture by digitally preserving over 100 years of film, television, music, and music videos. Speaking of the history of film, there was a turning point in the timeline of film history on which Adrian and I touched last episode and Chris and I talked about in the first episode. It was roughly around 2007 to 2009 when the industry was in a time of change, both in terms of production and distribution. Earlier this past week, one of my screenwriting heroes, Charlie Kaufman, gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal in which he had this to say about the era. Early on, I could play around and experiment, but the business has changed enormously, and it all happened around 2008 when studios stopped making movies and started making tentpoles. Stopped making movies and started making tentpoles. That, to me, in a nutshell, describes the current era of our Marvel-dominated box office in the same way that Scorsese called Marvel movies theme parks, or when Ethan Hawke said this to film stage. Now we have the problem that they tell us Logan is a great movie. Well, it's a great superhero movie, but it still involves people in tights with metal coming out of their hands. It's not Brisson, it's not Bergman, but they talk about it like it is. Big business wants you to think that this is a great film because they want to make money off of it. Echoing these sentiments in 2019, Terry Gilliam said this to IndieWire, if you are that powerful, you should be dealing with reality a bit more. Where's the gravity? Where's real gravity? Because in superhero movies, everything is possible. What I don't like is that we all have to be superheroes to do anything worthwhile. That's what makes me crazy. That's what these movies are saying to young people. And to me, it's not confronting the reality of, you know, the quote-unquote human condition. They're boring. I mean, they're repetitive. They're technically brilliant, the work is amazing, there's some very good actors working, and there's even some wonderful moments in them. But to me, it's the same film. I keep watching the same film. I don't like the fact that they're dominating the place so much. They're taking all of the money that should be available for a greater variety of films. There isn't room or money for a greater range of films. You make a film for over $150 million or less than $10 million. Where's all this other stuff? It doesn't exist anymore. And that middle area is not being funded. And that's sad. George Clooney said the same thing in 2019 on the Hollywood Reporter podcast. He said, The studios are less and less making the kinds of stories I like to tell, mid-range or even small budget. A lot of the types of stories I like to tell don't involve superheroes. But this isn't the podcast where I just sit around trash-talking the studios and superhero movies. Because I also want to trash talk those corporate sellouts over at Pitchfork, who just last week launched a new podcast. If it wasn't already apparent how out of touch they are with the hipster world, their first episode focuses solely on TikTok. Yeah, you know that TikTok? That piece of Chinese spyware everyone between the ages of 14 to 17 uses to make obnoxious dance videos? Yeah, that's the one. We all know how super relevant it is to the world of indie music and hipster culture. So great job, Pitchfork. Very hip. By contrast, we have Stereo Gum, who, after breaking away from their corporate overlords at the beginning of this year, are officially an independent publication once again. Keeping an independent music blog going isn't as cheap as you might imagine. 
As such, StereoGum founder Scott Lapatine has launched an Indiegogo campaign for a new StereoGum exclusive compilation called Save StereoGum. It features over 40 different indie artists covering their favorite indie songs from indie's golden age in the Audis. The official track list is still a secret, but we'll see tracks from Mac DeMarco, Death Cab for Cutie, The National, The New Pornographers, Tops, Rostam, and so many, many more. I'll be linking to the campaign in the show notes if you feel like supporting independent music journalism and getting some exclusive tunes in the process. But before we get into our conversation with Cole, I wanted to take a moment to dedicate this episode to two comedy legends who have recently left the building, Fred Willard and Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner defined a generation of comedy. He played the straight man opposite Mel Brooks in The 2,000-Year-Old Man, which had several iterations through the 1960s and into the 1990s. He created The Dick Van Dyke Show, which was one of the first meta-sitcoms, a comedy show about writing for a comedy show. Making the leap from the silver screen to the movie screen in the late 60s, he directed a string of comedies, the first two of which are sadly not available in any modern format. He directed Henry Winkler in the wrestling comedy The One and Only. He helped establish Steve Martin, giving him his first starring role in The Jerk, a movie that influenced countless comedy careers, including Judd Apatow. He then went on to direct Steve Martin in three other great 80s comedies, Dead Men Don't Wear a Plaid, The Man with Two Brains, and All of Me. He also directed John Candy in one of my favorites growing up, Summer Rental, replete with Rip Torn as a grizzled pirate server. He left an indelible mark on the world of comedy and lived life to the fullest, even until the end. Carl Reiner is perhaps best remembered by Steve Martin in his piece for the New York Times, which I will be linking to in the show notes. I won't read the whole thing here, but Steve begins, I've only known two perfect people in my life. One is that son of a bitch Martin Short, and the other is Carl Reiner. Carl's last performance is a rather fitting end, as he played the Peter Falk role of the storytelling grandfather in a fan remake of his son's film, The Princess Bride, for Quibi. I look forward to checking it out, but it's unfortunate that it's a Quibi exclusive, where the entire film will be broken up into 10-minute chunks and released vertically. If you don't know Quibi, Adrian and I touched on it last episode. It's that nearly $2 billion streaming service that no one watches because of all the bizarrely poor choices of its founders. Well, Vulture came out with a piece on why Quibi is failing so hard, and it's full of great gems about how out of touch its founders are, like the fact that Jeffrey Katzenberg makes his poor assistant print out all of his emails and fold them vertically because he prefers to read them on paper. We find old man Katzenberg talking about Quibi by comparing it to cultural touchstones of the previous century, like America's Funniest Home Videos, Siskel and Ebert, and Jane Fonda's workout videos, as if that was the last time he paid attention to culture. When co-founder Meg Whitman was asked what TV shows she watches, she responds by saying, I'm not much of an entertainment enthusiast, but Grant. On the History Channel, it's about President Grant. So let me get this straight, Meg. You run a streaming service and you don't enjoy entertainment? This tells me everything I need to know about what is wrong with the entertainment industry. Out-of-touch rich people spending exorbitant amounts of money to make things they don't understand. But enough about that. Because I also want to talk about Fred Willard. Fred Willard was comedy. Rising to prominence on the silver screen with Martin Mull in Fernwood Tonight, Fred's serious commitment to being silly cemented him in a league of his own. He was the star of the Sid and Marty Croft show DC Follies, 
which, if you haven't seen it, is a distinctively 80s time capsule combining Fred's comedy with politics and puppetry. After a small but memorable role in This Is Spinal Tap, Christopher Guest gave Fred's unique comic voice a home in movies like Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, For Your Consideration, and Mascots. Throughout the 2000s, Fred worked relentlessly, lending his talent to a number of my favorite movies and TV shows, including Everybody Loves Raymond, Undeclared, The Anchorman Movies, Dealing with Idiots, The Underrated Youth in Revolt, and far too many to name in this podcast. As TV comedy continued to evolve in the mid-2000s and 2010s, Fred showed how adaptable he was, appearing in many new innovative comedies like Tom Goes to the Mayor, Tim and Eric Awesome Show Great Job, Important Things with Dimitri Martin, Funny or Die Presents, Community, Drunk History, The Birthday Boys, Comedy Bang Bang, Review, and I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. His appearance on these shows, no matter how small, served as somewhat of a passing of the comedy torch, bridging the gap from one generation of comedy to the other. It seemed as though every new comedy show I liked somehow had Fred Willard in it. This trend continued even after his passing, with his handful of scenes in Space Force, which is not to be confused with Space Force, a 1978 pilot Fred starred in for NBC. Fred also played a pivotal role in the history of SF Sketchfest as he agreed to bring his Hollywood players to the festival's second year, helping to further establish the Young Comedy Festival. His relationship with SF Sketchfest continued throughout the years, returning year after year for various reunions, tributes, and comedy shows. I was lucky enough to see him on stage at the Marines Memorial Theater here in SF as he spilled his thoughts to the great Dr. Jonathan Katz in 2018. If you didn't get a chance to make it to San Francisco Sketchfest in 2017 for Fred's tribute, the Sketchfest team was gracious enough to post the entire tribute on YouTube for free, which is linked in the show notes. I would highly recommend checking out the rest of the Sketchfest archive as well, which is being open to the public for the first time ever. They're available for rental on the SF Sketchfest website, a link to which will also be included. I've really enjoyed catching up on past events that I missed, and even some that I actually attended. Be sure to check back often, as SF Sketchfest is putting out new shows weekly. I recorded this conversation with Cole prior to Fred's passing, so if you're wondering why we don't remark on it, wonder no more. Cole is such an awesome guest, and I'm excited to present to you our conversation. So enjoy. Cole, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Been a, a huge fan of what you've been doing, uh, your work in the comedy world and everything like that. So it's a huge honor to, to have you on the show here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. I want to get to know you a little bit better, and I'm sure my audience does as well. Um, so let's kind of just start at the beginning here. Sounds like you were uh, born in Okemos, is that right? Yeah, Okemos, Michigan. Well, I guess technically born in East Lansing or Lansing. At Sparrow Hospital, okay, nice. wherever that Sparrow, is. Sparrow, yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, basically, I think my parents had a house on like Harding in East Lansing for like the first year of my life. But then Okemos was pretty much where I grew up until I moved out to California when I was nine. So basically, like one to eight were in Okemos. Yeah. 
Totally. Do you remember much about your time in, in Michigan there? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot of my formative childhood years. So, of course, I have, like, a lot of memories of the world being big, you know, <laughs> especially yeah, totally. in Michigan where it's, like, very green and very wooded and stuff and just, you know, riding your bike around the neighborhood. And um, we had a bit of a hill in our front yard. So in this, like, winter time, you could sort of sled down it. So we'd take little saucers and go down that. And yeah, um, it's, you know, different time, too, because, like, grew up in the 80s was born in the late 70s so you know that was definitely the time of like you can ride your bike everywhere and your parents would be like be back by five or whatever and um you can yeah. just go do whatever it was more carefree than it is nowadays um since the world is so much of a dumpster fire but uh yeah it was i loved it there um so much so that i didn't want to move when we moved because i was you know in the summer between fourth and fifth grade so i had my friends and i liked it and um, but so I didn't really want to go to California, but I did. And, uh, yeah, but I, I definitely, yeah. I still have Detroit sports loyalties. So I'm a tiger and lion and Pistons and Red Wings fan and a Spartans fan, not, not Michigan. That's awesome. But, yeah, no, I'm actually uh Michigan state as well. Uh, most of my family actually went to Michigan state and I've got fond memories of going to football games growing up and whatnot. So yeah, go green. Yeah, totally. They're my favorite. My, my dad especially still watches everything, and when I call him, he'll always talk to me about the Izzo's latest crop of freshmen and all that stuff, too. And, like, I don't follow it as closely as he does. Like, if I'm around and it's on, I'll watch it. But um, he, you know, watches pretty much every game he can and stuff. So, yeah, pretty great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, one of my biggest uh, accomplishments while I was still in Michigan, uh, I actually got a chance to sell Tom Izzo a drone when I worked at Apple. <laughs> I got a chance to uh, to talk with him for a good while about uh, actually getting his drone up and running. So that was kind of funny. That's pretty hilarious. Yeah. So, uh, so what did your parents do in, in Michigan there? So my dad was in, at the time he was in bands. He was in a, a band that, um, the Stratton Brothers band that was with him and his brother Kevin um and they would you know play like nightclubs and stuff in the late 70s early 80s um but then when I was born he pretty much became a stay-at-home dad while my mom worked at um Michigan State she was in the uh public communications department there and uh she basically the reason we moved was she basically got a similar job at better stature over at uc davis that paid a lot more so that's why we picked the uh the whole clan up and moved out to california yeah it makes a lot of sense uh now did you have uh, brothers and sisters growing up uh, i have one brother shay he's uh three years younger than me okay nice nice and uh did he was he okay with the move too or was he also resistant to it i think he was okay i mean he was you know six five or six so i don't think it really um occurred to him as much as it did to me you know because <laughs> i was like nine or ten yeah. or whatever so I was, I was a little more like wait no this is where we live this is what we do i think i remember i tried to sabotage the move a little bit too like you know people would come over to look look <laughs> at the k car we were selling and i'd be like yeah it leaks gas even though it didn't um yeah. just whatever i could do to not move it out but you know i'm certainly glad we did because my life would not be what it is if we hadn't made that move oh totally now i just want to pause for a second you had a k car growing up oh yeah that's awesome. Oh, yeah. I have never actually uh, ridden in one myself, but it was uh, somewhat of an infamous vehicle around Michigan growing up. Oh, yeah. K-Car was great. My grandpa was – he was an automotive guy. He worked, like, in the factories at, like, 
I think it was like Dodge Plymouth, that kind of stuff. So we, my whole life we bought like Dodge and Plymouth vehicles so much yeah. so until like I think I had a well, when I graduated from college from San Francisco State, my graduation present my mom was like, we're going to get you a car. You can pick any of these Plymouth neons you like. So I uh, <laughs> had a neon. Um, so I pretty much had Dodge and Plymouth cars my most of my life until when I finally bought my own car, I bought myself uh, a Subaru Crosstrek. But before that, it was you know pretty much always Detroit Automotive. Yeah, totally. And it, it's funny because I definitely see that there's kind of this uh, familial alliance. You know, some families are like we're a Ford family or we're a Dodge family. It's just it's so interesting how there's kind of that alignment there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So uh, when would you say you kind of discovered your love of comedy? Was that uh, while you were still in Michigan or after you made the move? Um, Definitely like when I was in Michigan still. I was always raised like my dad's super, super into movies and comedy always has been. And like his dream back in the day was just like, what if they had a device where I could just watch movies whenever I wanted? And then the VCR was invented. So we had one of those like top loading huge giant vcrs that sounded like an aircraft carrier taking off when you would rewind a video um and and i think they were like a thousand dollars at the time which in the early 80s is a lot of money um totally but so you know that was kind of the thing and and i always said i was a child of hbo so i watched a ton of movies growing up so i was always into movies and comedy and stuff so i don't know i think i kind of picked that up from my dad initially and then I just became obsessed. So from an early age, I was just all about movies. My room would be decorated with posters and what whatnot. So I was always into that and into comedy, 100%. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you, you had a great time to, to have an upbringing there just because HBO in the 80s, I mean, what a lineup of movies that they would they would put on there. I, I was born in 91, so I missed that entire wave, but I know a lot about it just because I'm such a nerd about this sort of stuff. So, I mean, boy, there were just so many great comedies that they would just play on HBO all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many movies that I will defend till the end of time because I've seen them a billion times. And I think a lot of them hold up. Some of them don't. But I still have a spot for them very much so. I definitely like would watch Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Cloak and Dagger, The Last Unicorn, the pirate movie, yeah. all those things like over and over and over again. So I, I have more of a soft spot for those movies than like Ghostbusters, Gremlins. I mean, I wa- definitely watch those movies, but and mm-hmm. I like them a lot, but they weren't the ones that I just constantly was watching. Yeah, it's it's funny because I actually feel the same way. Um, you know, obviously the '80s huge tentpole blockbuster films, and and that stuff did resonate with me. But I definitely tended to gravitate more towards like. I don't know, the more culty movies, the ones that were a little bit more under the radar and things like that. And I don't know, there was just something about those movies that really spoke to me. Uh, you, you mentioned Cloak and Dagger. I mean, that's just such a prime example of like a dark 80s kids movie, uh, you know, along with something like The Wizard or, you know, movies like that. That yeah. It's like you kind of think about nowadays, you're like, boy, was that really like the best for kids? But, you know, we all grew out of it and seemed to be okay. That's the weird thing is back then, like, people... Like, movies for kids were pretty dark in a lot of ways. And I think it was – like, they weren't dark in terms of, like, there's lots of sex and violence or whatever. But they were dark in terms of theme a lot of the time. And um, I don't know. I think that kind of shaped me and shapes a lot of kids. Now I think, you know, there's not so much of a difference because I don't think parents really 
necessarily like filter movies as much as they did back then. The rating system mm-hmm. really was meant something. You know, if a movie was PG thirteen, you better be thirteen. You know, your parents' eyes R rated is a big deal. Now I think like you know you can go to an R rated movie and there'll be kids in there that are like five years old, which is you know pretty annoying to me. But I mean, I remember when I actually I went to the Hangover in two thousand nine. And I remember there were parents bringing their, you know, kids in with the stroller and everything like that. I was like, really? But, uh, yeah, apparently that's just the norm now. Yeah, it totally is. Kids are completely, like, turned off to it all. Like, I don't, you know, whether it chased them or not, I don't know. But um, it's definitely different than it used to be. Because, like, theaters would take it seriously. I remember when I went and saw Terminator 2, I was probably, I don't know, 13, 14, somewhere in there. And uh, it was summer. I was in Davis, where we moved. And, um, you know, I remember we went to, like, an 11 a.m. showing, like, me and two of my high school buddies. They looked a lot older than me. They were taller. They are like, six, you know, six foot. Yeah. And I was always really small. And uh, we bought tickets, and we got in, and we were like, oh, my God, we're in a CT2. It was, like, a big deal. And I remember that, like, a manager came over and, like, kind of scrutinized us and scrutinized, like, the seller and said something to her like basically don't do that anymore but we got to see the movie and it was huge it was like for us it was like oh my god we get to see this and like honestly that movie it's a bit violent but it's not Mm -hmm. there's nothing in that that's going to be like i'm 14 and i'm warped now like i was totally yeah oh totally ready for that film but that was a big deal you know like i remember like i would have to get r-rated movie exceptions for my parents and i heeded that for the most part like um Mm -hmm. We went to see – we tried to see a sneak screening of Good Morning Vietnam when it was coming out. And oh, yeah. uh, unfortunately, it was sold out because, you know, those are the days before you could just buy stuff in advance and we didn't anticipate mm-hmm. it. But we were at the movie theaters in Sacramento at the time, these big domes, and we were trying to figure out, well, what else should we see? And at that time, Fatal Attraction was out. This is 1987 because that's mm-hmm. – I always argued that that's one of the greatest years for movies. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was also out, which is what we went and saw. And they thought, you know, Steve Martin, John Candy. And my mom had always, like, didn't love, like, extreme language. And that one's mm-hmm. pretty intense with that. And also, like, embarrassment humorous. It's very cringy. And yeah. I, just, I, I think it's my mom's least favorite movie. One, because, like, that was the first R-rated movie I saw in the theater. And mm-hmm. um, I think that was kind of upsetting to her in a lot of ways. Um that's so funny to me. I mean, specifically, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, for the most part, is a pretty PG movie, except for that part where Steve Martin's in the airport, yep. and he says, fuck, like, 17 times or something times, like that. Yeah. And that's pretty much the thing that makes it a hard R. Yep. Which is crazy, because now you can say some of those words on FX or whatever. But at the time, oh, yeah. you know, totally. that was a big deal. I think there's two F-bombs allowed per PG-13 movie now. Uh, and so there, it's it's really interesting to see how the cultural attitudes have shifted over the years. I was think that's weird. It's like you say it once, haven't you just said it? Like where, like is, is it the repetition that they're worried about? Well, it's also contextual. I mean, because I'm such a nerd about this, they actually, if you say it as uh, like an expletive, like oh, fuck this or whatever, like that's okay. But if you use it as a verb, that changes it to an R. It's kind that of interesting. Sense. That is weird. Yeah. Because I always, like, thought it was funny, like, trying to, like, figure out what the one F-bomb would be in PG-13 movies and how they would use it. And um, I think my favorite one was, and I think it was X-Men First Class when um, 
Xavier's trying to recruit people. And it's the Hugh Jackman cameo where he goes up to him in a bar to try to recruit him, and he just goes, fuck off. Like, it's the one F-bomb in the movie, yeah. and it's so appropriate for Wolverine that I was like, that's a great use of the F-word. Well, it's funny, too, because for a long time, things that were a bit raunchy but didn't push it to an R would still be relegated to PG. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is in Spaceballs. Uh, you know, they drop an F-bomb in Spaceballs, which is a PG movie, uh, you know, and you look at Airplane and and things like that. And there there are uh, examples of, of where they push the envelope, but it wasn't enough to make it a hard R. And this was before really PG-13 took a hold. Uh, so you definitely see kind of relics of that era. Yeah, it's always been weird to me, like how the rating system and how different it is here versus Europe or whatever, where, like, they don't like to show violence. Here, it's like, you can blow a guy's head off in a PG-13 movie. You just can't show tits. Like, that's the crazy thing about it. And I remember once, like, I worked at video stores for a long time, and I had put Airplane on, and, you know, it's great. But, of course, like, some mom came and complained on the one scene where chaos happens and a woman runs in front of the screen, topless, and then runs off. And I'm like, oh, it's context. Yeah. Like, it's not sexualizing anything. It's ridiculous is what it is. But, yeah. but, you know, it's the fact that I got an earful about having this PG movie on in the theater, in the store, you know, that yeah. made me – it kind of angered me, to be honest. But I'm like, yeah. this is a great movie. Like, if that's your takeaway from this, then fuck off. Yeah, you're like – you're missing the point, lady. Come yeah, on. exactly. Yeah, totally. That's hilarious. So I, I do want to explore a little bit about that time in your life uh, when you were kind of in high school and, you know, sneaking into R-rated movies and whatnot. So what uh, what was the cultural attitude like? Did you have friends who were into movies as well, or were you just kind of a lone wolf there? Um, I definitely had friends who would go with me and like to go to the movies and stuff. They weren't as hardcore about it as I was. Um, my two best friends growing up, Matt and Nate, um, you know, we hung out a lot. Nate lived across the street from me, Matt, around the corner, because that's how you had friends back in those days. And um, we would go to the movies a lot, especially in the summer, because it's just something to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But we would also rent movies on, like, I remember, like, Friday night at Matt's half the time, like, they would have, get a Little Caesars square pizza. And um, we would rent something from the video store, and I'll watch it over there. And um, we definitely rented a lot of things. But I was more obsessed with it. There was... um, this place called Blue Heron Video at the University Mall in Davis. Of course, it no longer exists. It became a warehouse, you know, which hmm. was rentable too. But I would go in there all the time and rent things and like kind of hang out a little bit. Kind of became like a video store rat in a sense. And I would take like when they would take movie posters down to put up new ones, they would um, you know put them in a little bin, be like free, and I would go and like. You look through it and take some, and they were always like, "Cool." They're like, yeah, you take, "Take as many as you want, or whatever." And yeah. my my room that I had moved into had like strawberry like wallpaper because the previous tenants had a daughter that lived in that room, and I didn't love that, so I just kind of po- like plastered my wall with these posters. And um, I took cardboard standees too, so I had like a giant one for broadcast news, Willow, and Dirty Dancing. Those were the three that I had oh, wow. in my room. Nice. Um, which is funny because I'm curious, like curious how much of money that some of those would fetch nowadays because those are definitely like I was gonna say those are collectors items for yeah sure. those would fetch a pretty penny yeah so I had those and then it was just kind of weird the posters I had too like I didn't I I wasn't worried about value they weren't like framed or anything like they were just taped up you know yeah um, and I had cats that would kind of shred some of the ones at the bottom sometimes so I would just <laughs> you know pull those down when they got shredded put something else up but I was definitely like into 
every kind of movie. It didn't matter to me, like, if it was popular or big or whatever. I liked, and I still like, a lot of the littler movies, the things off the beaten path more that are magical and wonderful that people don't necessarily know about. So whenever people are like, you know, your favorite movie list, you're not going to see, like, Godfather or things like that on for me. I like those movies, but they're not the ones that resonate with me. And I don't know if that's, you know, like snobby in a sense or something it's not because a lot of things i have on there are like lesser films compared to the godfather but the Mm godfather is not a film that i revisit i i know that Mm -hmm. it's brilliant and i've seen it a couple times throughout the year but it's not something that like oh god i want to watch that there's tons of movies like that that i watch over and over again some of which you know you could put under guilty pleasures i know they're not good movies other which are great movies that people don't necessarily know about that are decently reviewed that just didn't have big box office that there's a cult around, um, but aren't massive. So for me, when I was growing up, I definitely like would go to the video stores. I would hang out. I, I definitely there was something to me about like, oh my gosh, this new release Tuesday. Let's go down yeah. and see what the new videos are. And um, you know, feeling like you got lucky on a Friday night when a copy of something came in that was always checked out, um, mm-hmm. and being able to take that home and it was so exciting and. Like, I miss that social aspect. I miss being able to go to a video store and look around and, like, pick things up and be like, oh, I've been meaning to see this or what's this, reading the back and giving it a shot or whatever. And now it's like I get lost in the sea of streaming. And honestly, I don't think streaming is well organized. It kind of pisses me off. It's all kind of Mm -hmm. based on algorithms, and I don't like that. Like, I think I wish it would be easier because I see a lot of the same titles over and over and over again. I would much rather have it be like, you know, westerns a to z you know so i can find it better versus like yes i know that because i watched the man who shot liberty valance i should watch tombstone you've shown me that 17 times i'm aware (laughs) of this i have seen tombstone but maybe you know i get it i like the idea that they're trying to suggest other titles too but don't make it difficult for me to find the other things oh totally it's it's so funny you talk about the video store like that because even though I'm a bit younger than you, I still grew up on the video stores and you know I came up around the time that um, you know we started doing VHS and then I remember the day that they opened up they put a DVD shelf in the video store and we're like what is this like I've never seen these things before it's like they were way more expensive to rent than VHS tapes and I just remember uh, going into the store and just being lost in the sheer amount of titles and just especially you look at vhs cover art uh there is just something as a kid when you go into the video store that you're just enraptured and you just see these titles and so many of them i wasn't allowed to rent um so that was the other thing is that i was raised in a uh, christian household and so we weren't allowed to watch pg-13 movies before we were uh, 13 so there were so many titles that i remember seeing but was never allowed to watch. So one of the reasons I actually started this um, Golden Age collection is specifically to basically virtually build a video store of yesteryear with all of the titles that I wasn't allowed to watch growing up. So it gives me the opportunity to have kind of that nostalgia of going through and finding these titles that, you know, were some of them never actually got a DVD release. So some of them went straight from VHS to Blu-ray. Uh, so there's a handful of titles that are pretty hard to come by. And that's the t- uh, sort of stuff I tend to gravitate towards, uh, whether it's just because it's obscure or, or what have you. I don't know. But I definitely uh, – that resonates with me a lot. But for me, it's like – because I worked at indie video stores for tons of years. Like when I went off to college, there's one in Davis that I would work at in the summer. It's called Lightwave Video. It 
got bought out by Blockbuster. So I briefly worked for Blockbuster, and I was like, nope. So I just didn't like the corporate side of things. Now I'd love to, even to have a blockbuster run, but I didn't like that they wouldn't cover, they wouldn't carry controversial titles, and I, mm-hmm. I just didn't like that. I didn't like that. Like, so you can't rent Last Temptation of Christ at a blockbuster? Why? Like, uh, it's Martin yeah. Scorsese. Come on. Like, I don't really, I have really no interest in that movie, but you should be able to rent it. I don't understand oh, totally. why you can't. So that shit pissed me off. So I worked at Lightwave in the summers and kind of. I remember when I went to get a job there and I got interviewed while I was like, he was showing me around the store and some woman was trying to figure out what some movie was and I was overhearing it and she's like, it's, it's like, it's, it's like a comedy. It's like, it's in the jungle, blah, blah. It's like cannibal uh, something. And I was like, cannibal women in the avocado jungle of death. She's like, that's it. <laughs> Which is like this really kind of campy eighties comedy that Bill Maher's in. Um, oh, nice. It's one of those like Cinemaxy kind of like comedy and boobs movies. But I just remember it. <laughs> so like immediately he's like, oh, well, you're going to work here. That's incredible. I've always kind of had an encyclopedic knowledge of, of movies and stuff. And it's gotten worse because now I am f- overwhelmed by the sheer volume of what's available and what comes out because of all the platforms now that like movies that would get a theatrical release back in the day are like, you know, you're lucky if you can find it. It's buried yeah. somewhere. It has, you know, some stars in it. But back in the day, movies would open up, you know, on a weekend, you'd have, you know, three or four major releases and a couple of smaller things. And then it was kind of like a badge of shame if a movie was direct to DVD back then, you know, like what's wrong with this movie? Now it's like most things are. Um, So I would kind of know everything. And I definitely, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff, but also just were aware of a lot of things. And then working at the video store and like you know, renting them out and classifying them. And, and when I started working in college, there was this video store called Movie Magic that was in the apartment complex area where we lived next to SF State. Um, I worked there, and we kind of turned it into a specialty video store where, nice. um, you know, the adult film section paid for the specialty videos. <laughs> but um, we would make direct – we had tons of director sections and, you know, whatever stuff. And I was kind of a completist with that, and we would go – this is back in VHS days before the, even the, the DVDs came in, which obviously we got into that too. But there was this warehouse in Sacramento where they would kind of compile all of these VHS tapes from video stores that had like sent them in because they didn't need extra copies or like they closed down and they, they got their stock. So you could buy titles from them, like, you know, email or whatever. But we would take a trip, me and Tommy McDermott, the owner of – movie magic would take a trip down there like from san francisco to sacramento so you know little 90 minute to our trip and like on a weekday and they would just let us go through their warehouse and we would take like like a cart and wheel it around and just pull titles and at the time i was very aware of what was available what was hard to find certain titles for certain actors and directors that i had always like wanted to find and then sometimes you'd find a needle in a haystack like it you would i would freak out like i just remember there was like it's not a good movie at all, but there's this movie called Choo Choo and the Philly Flash with Alan Arkin and Carol Burnett. Um, oh, yeah. And I was super into Alan Arkin, who we've had at the festival and stuff, too. Like, he's always been kind of a hero of mine. And we were, oh, he's, he's amazing. He's fantastic. And we were always trying to, like, my roommate and I, Dave, who found a sketch fest with me, we were both really into Arkin. So we would just kind of try to watch everything he was in. So finding these things that were, like, super out of print and hard to find. And, you know, if at the time VHS was cost $99, you know, that was the retail. Oh, yeah. So some of the things never repriced to own, so to speak. So they stayed at that cost. Um, yeah. So even if you could find that, you had to order it at the 
$100, and they would let us have these things for, like, I think they were, like, $10 each or something. Or, like, they were not expensive. So I remember mm-hmm. just going through these aisles in this huge warehouse looking at the stuff and just getting so excited and finding all these cool things and all these obscure movies by directors that we had director sections for that we couldn't fill out and just making it super specialized. And then starting to get into DVDs and stuff there, too. I, I was a pretty early adopter of DVDs. I bought my first one at Montgomery Ward when that was a place. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was like $300 or something, and it came with like five titles that from a Warner Brothers list you could pick. So I think I got like Austin Powers and Boogie Nights, Contact, and two other nice. ones. But at that time, I was like, that was like the new frontier for me because of all the extras. Like, I remember oh, yeah. getting Boogie Nights and listening to the Paula, you know, P.T. Anderson commentary and stuff and watching the deleted scenes and the gag reels and stuff and for me as a cinema nut like that was like next level i couldn't believe that that was a thing so yeah it's huge i I remember that too i mean one of the ones that i gravitated towards first uh one of the first dvds at least that i had that had special features uh weird Al's uhf um that movie i mean when i got to see the special features on that i was just blown away just based on the fact that all of a sudden, I can see kind of the behind the scenes. I can see, I can hear the commentary tracks. Uh, just to kind of get a little bit of how the sausage made was kind of a game changer for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I was technically in school for film. That's what I was going to do. So yeah. I have a degree from SF State in cinema with a direction, on, uh, an emphasis on direction. Not doing a lot with that, but yeah, that's what I got. That was why I initially went to school because I thought I was going to be a filmmaker, a director. Um, but then I started just concentrating more on the acting side of thing, which I'd always done too. But this is back in the days when, you know, things weren't really digital yet. I was in college in like mid nineties. So the film program was like learning to edit actual film, like editing on a yeah. flatbed and, and cutting stuff and literally pasting it together and stuff is very different. And that was sort of starting to be on the outs, but it wasn't yet. So mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what I was going to do. But then just decided – went more with the acting side of thing and the comedy side of thing. And that's kind of when I kind of dropped that but still worked at video stores and just kind of always had a love for it. And that continues to this day. That's awesome. I, I love how that kind of – that lifelong passion is, is stuck with you. Uh, even if it may kind of changed forms a little bit over the years, uh, it definitely comes through in your personality, which is awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I've always embraced it. Like I'm not – I just love movies and like I'm not snobby about it. Some people might say that I am, but I'm not. Like I I think all movies are valid. I love movies. Um, like I would be snobby in a sense back in the day when I work at the video store and when they were – just starting to letterbox movies and we would have oh, yeah. we had a letterbox section and which had like sticker on the side that said letterboxed and like there'd be bars on the top of the thing to explain what it is and people would come up and they didn't understand it because tvs mm-hmm. weren't widescreen now they all are thank god but they weren't yeah. they were you know four three there boxes and i'd have to explain to them what it was they'd be like well what's better and i was like well letterbox is keeping the movie what it was it's you know it's you don't yeah. see a square it's a rectangle so put a rectangle square you gotta put these black bars at the top and the bottom which actually preserve the picture it's not pan and scanning back and forth is what your computer does you and doing the whole spiel yeah yeah and they would like go okay and they would rent it and then like they'd come back an hour later and be like yeah part of the screen's cut off and i'd be like what did i just go through okay fine go take your pan and scan and you're not going to see roy scheider in the shot but okay whatever yeah. um <laughs> like you know that's kind of well, the only thing I was snobby about is because people then would make me feel like I was an idiot, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. how could you like this? And I was like, 
I like the film like it's supposed to be to look <laughs> shots. Yeah, exactly. Like they're you want to get the entire image. Yeah, exactly. I don't see why that's a thing. You don't go to the movie theater and be like, "Hey, can you sit in front of me so I can miss part of the screen?" That makes you crazy. <laughs> and it, to me, it's the same thing, especially when you see the computer digitally panning back and forth. It's really oh, obvious. Yeah. It's yeah, definitely. Our movies that are shot super wide. I remember the professional, like. Matilda and, and, and the professional Leon would be walking down the street yeah. super like a shot super wide but like not next to each other and they'd be having a conversation but they couldn't get them both in the frame at the same time in the 4-3 so they would use the computer to pan back and forth and it was almost dizzying and it was annoying oh, as hell yeah. I was like can't we just watch them both walk down the street and talk like why do I have yeah. to choose like that kind of stuff it made me crazy oh so I, totally I'd say that's the only thing I was ever really like snobby about yeah, well, I'm I'm a big believer in that, too, and I think it's important to be able to try to preserve the aspect ratio and just kind of watch the film the way it was intended to be watched. Uh, you know, and I'll be honest, I was guilty of, of indulging in full-screen DVDs before I really knew much about them um, because at the time I was using them on my iPod. Uh, you know, laugh all you want, but on that two-and-a-half-inch screen, I would watch uh, quite a handful of movies. That's where I first really uh, got intimately familiar with uh, some of my favorite movies, just watching them over and over again. And uh, I didn't realize at the time that by buying full screen DVDs, even though they looked better on my iPod because they would fill the screen, that I was really missing a pretty decent chunk of the image. So I regret really investing in some of those early DVDs that were just cropping off sides of the image in order to make it fit on a, on a square television. <laughs> right. I can't remember which comedian it was, but somebody had tweeted like, I can't wait to get home and watch The Revenant on my Apple Watch. Oh, yeah. It just, it just cracks me up the way people watch things. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's it's something that I've grown out of for sure. Like, I refuse to watch anything other than on the TV these days. Um, but I definitely have some friends who, who watch movies on their phones and things like that, which in a pinch, maybe. But I just, I, I don't know. I can't justify it just because I want to see it on the big screen. I mean, there are things that I call plain movies that are like things I'm probably not going to watch otherwise, but I'm on a plane for four hours, so I'll watch it on that tiny screen or whatever, and sometimes it's modified or whatever. I was like, well, I remember I watched the movie Fist Fight a couple years ago on a flight, and I didn't realize it was edited for content but every like that, there's a lot of expletives in that movie, and they would like replace them with other things. So it kind of became comedic. I was like, all right, this is like watching the made-for-TV edits growing up. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, that was actually those talking about made-for-TV edits. Those were some of the first R-rated movies I was actually allowed to see. Uh, we talked about Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, uh, Blues Brothers. These were films that that my parents liked, but they weren't. They wouldn't allow me to watch them, you know, unedited. So you know, usually when these were on, you know, TBS or AMC or you know whatever channel it happened to be on, that was my first exposure to some of these movies. So it's just so cool to be able to watch them growing up now, uh, you know, and see the actual like unedited cuts and and not have to worry about commercials or you know bleeping out this or changing the the verbiage there. Kind of wish they just bleeped them more. Like the, I mean, it's kind of funny if you ever find this needs to go back and listen to the things that they tried to dub over. Because it was, oh, yeah. like, half the time the person's voice sounded nothing like the person they were replacing. It was very lazily done. And the things they would come up with, like, I remember in Ferris Bueller, the line is, like, Cameron is so tight, if you shoved a lump of coal up his ass in two weeks, you'd have a diamond. And the uh, <laughs> the edit, TV edit was, Cameron is so tight, if you shoved a lump of coal up his fist in two weeks, you'd have a diamond. Like, it was not That's amazing. even close. And, at, yeah, at 3 o'clock high, I remember, had, like, 
they, they call they call him a pussy a lot, and they, I can't remember what they put in for it, but it sounded nothing like it. And there would be a four or five expletives in a row. It just got hilarious. That's awesome. One of my favorites was from The Big Lebowski uh, when uh, John Goodman is smashing the, the Corvette outside. And he goes, you see what happens, Larry, when you fight a stranger in the Alps? Oh, yeah. You know, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just, like, so ridiculous. But I don't know who comes up with those TV edits and having to dub over them. But, yeah, that's an interesting job for sure. Yeah, pretty hilarious. I mean, they should just you know bleep out fuck and then that's fine <laughs> like exactly no but they have to get totally creative and find a way to like not only bleep the expletive but change the entire phrase of the line it's just crazy right and make it fit the mouth and the temperance as much as they can yeah that's hilarious uh, so if you don't mind, I'd love to know a little bit more about your time at SF State, um, because I know that you were in Davis, California, and then had you been to SF much before going to college there? I mean, did you travel in and out, or was uh, that your first exposure, really? Uh, we would go sometimes. I mean, it was a 90-minute drive. Um, we would go to see theater and stuff. And also, like, I would take classes sometimes, like, at ACT for acting and stuff, like oh, some awesome. teen, teen things and stuff. So we'd be there fairly often. Um, I remember being very intimidated by the city, especially the one-way streets, which actually are, like, easier to drive on, which a lot of people don't realize. But, um, yeah. yeah, like, I, I definitely would go a lot, and I definitely liked the city a lot. I basically, I applied to two schools. I applied to SF State as my safety school and UCLA, wanted to do film. I had, like, a 3.5 in high school, which is pretty good, but not, not amazing for UCLA. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't get into UCLA, and I was like, eh, okay, fine. San Francisco's good. It's close to home, but it's not home. I'm not going to run into my parents at the grocery store. So, yeah, so I was I went there, lived in the dorms for the first year, and then moved off campus into Park Merced, which is a bunch of apartments next door to campus, and lived there f- until I moved to L.A. in 2003. Um, yeah, I, lo- I liked it a lot at State. What I didn't realize was how impacted the film classes were going to be because a lot of the things mm-hmm. were like in giant lecture halls where it would be like, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to watch Stagecoach with 800 people and write an essay about it. You know, it, it didn't – I was kind of like mm-hmm. disillusioned by the big lecture hall classes. So I kind of yeah. like – I didn't – I didn't. I mean I graduated and stuff, but my GPA wasn't great because like I didn't – so the classes I didn't care about, I like – I got to the point where I'd be like, I'm just going to go on exam days and see what happens if they're not taking role they don't care they're not talking to me so i would get like c's in those classes or i would get an incomplete sometimes or d or whatever and i didn't care because like i was like i'm not learning anything from this i don't feel engaged so those are the classes that like i didn't try very hard in but the ones that were smaller like the production classes the few times we actually got to touch cameras and make films like i was super into those and i did well in those classes because i felt like it was a good use of my time yeah Um, totally and i got more into you know acting and comedy and all that other stuff which was more important to me than at that point than what i was learning in these classes because i felt like i wasn't really learning much so um and i'm not trying to diss college i think it's super essential and it obviously like shapes who you are and also gives you a lot of your friends for life and your contacts and you kind of figure out where your place is in the world so you yeah. should fully go, um, but you know you're not necessarily going to get a lot of pleasure out of all the classes that you're in. Um, you know, I have my degree. I'm glad I have my degree. I'm glad I finished that. But you know, I don't romanticize schooling, and I don't ever really want to go back. Yeah. Um, but you know, I did like my time overall there. But the main thing was the people I met, and I started mm-hmm. doing. I've done improv comedy most of my life. I started when I was a like teenager. I took a class in Sacramento 
called like improv for teens that buck busfield taught timothy busfield's brother (laughs) runs the b street theater there um and i got i was like hooked and he thought i was good at it so we had like this little group that would do like shows at like a mall on a saturday um which was fun too in sacramento and so i just kind of became obsessed with improv and i would like in my drama classes growing up i would be the ones like new improv so they'd ask me to teach improv games to the class and stuff and you know, in co- in high school at Davis High School, they had a long-standing improv group called Improv Core that had been around since like the '60s. That Dave Burmester, who taught drama and stuff there, was in charge yeah. of, and we would meet twice a week at lunch, you know, to do improv stuff, and then we'd have shows periodically. And what was fun about that was is that we would do like a long, like you know, ninety-minute show with like two forty-five-minute halves, and the first half would be short-form games, and then the second half mm-hmm. would be a herald. So you didn't often get taught long form improv at that age, but I, so I did both and I got an appreciation for both things. So when I moved to, you know, San Francisco and I was in the dorms there, I started an improv team there called small chicken that we would do Mm -hmm. like, um, short form games, like once a month in the cantina at Mary Ward hall, uh, Mary park hall, whatever it was, one of those places and, uh, Mm -hmm. kept doing it. And so I started being kind of a bit of a club rat. I would go down to Cobb's comedy club and, the was at that time was in the marina and my mm-hmm. buddy ben who i had was in a class at as a state which was called like the like tv it was a critical tv class which was rare but yeah. um it was fun because you would like you know really look at like the the bones of a tv show and all that stuff um so i met awesome. my buddy ben there and we like kind of hit it off and he was working the desk at Cobbs, so i would go constantly and hang out there um would see everybody when they would come through and um started like they have they have showcase shows on every wednesday night that were like three hours of comedians and if you wanted to get on them you had to call like right at six and then tom sawyer the club owner would pick up and be like yep nope 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 and he'd make you call a lot huh. to get up but he liked to do improv a little bit and so at the end of the three-hour showcase we had kind of a little house improv team that would do like a 20-minute set of short form games called the Riffingtons that Tom was in. And I, w- I ended up in and a couple other people too. So I was kind of constantly doing that. So that's, nice. that's kind of what I like started my love of like kind of transition more to doing comedy full time. Um, yeah. SF States where I met Janet Varney and David Owen and Gabriel Diani, who, you know, get Janet and Dave found a sketch fest with me. Yeah. Um, we all met there and started doing sketch comedy together in a group called totally false people. There were like seven or eight of us initially when we were trying to figure it out. And then people kind of dropped off before we even had a show. Um, <laughs> and it ended up being the four of us. And so that kind of like, you know, sketch comedy wasn't really a thing that was done much. And so we kind of all got obsessed with that. And, um, that's kind of how the festival was born because we didn't really have places to perform. And so we knew like a couple other groups in town that had a similar scenario. There was a couple venues you could use the mock cafe and stuff, which had like a, like a beam in the middle of the stage and all sorts of things. And you couldn't really do it at a comedy club because people would be like, what was that? And you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it at a theater because theaters wouldn't do one-offs. You had to rent for a month. So that's kind of how interesting. That's how we started this whole thing is we rented the Shelton theater in union square, which is 75 seats still there. Um, and we like called it a festival. We called it, you know, SF sketch of the San Francisco sketch comedy festival. And it was us and Casper Hauser, white noise, radio theater, white, uh, fresh robots, please leave the Bronx. Um, and the Meehan brothers. 
and at the time like we didn't know if anybody would come we we just mm-hmm. decided that we did it like thursday through sunday um for four weeks basically because that's what we had it for, for uh a month and we did two groups a night co-headlining each doing 45 minutes with the stand-up host and then the last week we did like cabaret style where all six groups went up and did 15 minute sets with the thing and the Chron- oh, nice. chronicle ran a big story on it because january is a slow news time um and yeah. it just kind of brought a lot of interest to it because that's when print would do stuff and we sold everything out and that's kind of when we were like oh this is a thing and that's a pretty noteworthy people because fresh robots had uh w kamal bell and el madrigal in it um, yeah so all these people you know were in it initially and took a chance on it and it's just kind of a fluke if we hadn't gone to sf state if we hadn't started a sketch comedy troupe together if there had been a lack of venues for sketch comedy i don't think the festival ever would have started because we certainly didn't have ideas for it It was just kind of like oh, a banner way of us to try to get people to it and kind of to share our audiences with each other and try to get new people in yeah i mean that's so cool i i love hearing the kind of the the construction of how it all uh, took place there and i think that uh, you know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And specifically when you were looking around trying to find places to perform, uh, you sometimes have to make your own and, and kind of find a way to, to craft it yourself. So I, I wasn't super familiar with kind of the backstory of how Sketchfest came to be. Uh, so it's super cool to kind of hear how things really came together there. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's not something we ever thought would be a thing. It was not our intention, really. It's just when we... When things sold out and it was popular, like a little light bulb went off. We're like, oh, maybe we've kind of figured something out here. And I think we've yeah. been successful throughout the years is like we're ambitious, but we also we came at it as performers. So we knew what performers wanted to get out of the festival. But we mm-hmm. also were decent business people in that we kind of understood what an audience wanted to get out of it. And I think that's where we've been lucky that the two emerged because I've seen a lot of festivals – not survive because it's tough it's not a lucrative business so to speak and then i think a lot of the time it's like they're run by performers that don't understand the business side of it or they're run by businesses that don't understand what the performers and what audiences want and i think we just got lucky that we had the combination of the two which allowed us to make it what it is yeah, I was going to say, I think having both halves of that same coin allow you to uh, not only curate an amazing festival, uh, but keep it coming back year after year. And I think that's kind of been the secret formula, so to speak, of how the uh, festival has uh, maintained its success for so long. Yeah, I think it's just like a, uh, we were just lucky at so many things, so many boxes that ended up being checked. And it helps that we're in San Francisco. It's a city that people love, that people want to visit, that comedians want to go to. Yeah, It's a town that appreciates theater and comedy. The audiences are great and they're fair. Um, sometimes they're not, but for the most part, yeah. they're really good. Like if you, if you do well, they will appreciate it. If you do poorly, they'll let you know. Um, but in general, I feel like our audiences are people that love comedy and keep coming back. There are people that just go to Cobbs or Punchline on a weekend to see one of our shows that don't know the festival's on. But for the most part, I think it's it's like-minded people that just love comedy. And um, I mean, that's the hardest part of programming after 20 years is like, we're getting older. So how do we make sure that we keep growing the festival for people that are younger than us that have completely different taste stuff? So that's yeah. the challenge. 
Definitely. I mean, it's it's always a challenge because there's always new stuff happening and, and new performers, new shows coming out, new movies. So trying to find a balance between doing stuff that you love versus stuff that maybe would appeal to uh, some of the younger crowds uh, must be kind of challenging to, to curate it year after year. It is. I mean, I, th- I think the volume of what we do allows us to not have to make hard decisions that often. Like we can be yeah. like, hey, this is a, something that I'm passionate about. And my partners will be like, all right, cool, we'll do it. Like we're not making each other be like, well, we only get 10 shows. Like it's there's 250 yeah. shows or whatever. So it allows us to like do the things that we love that are like, you know, movie or film reunions from things from the 80s are slightly more obscure that that end up doing fine, but like aren't the big things but we can do them because we have the ability to and then finding things that are new and that people are into and stuff and but the thing we've always been cognizant of is like programming a festival we're we're proud of that we like not just taking something in that's like well this person will draw a lot but they suck like we're not gonna do Mm -hmm. that we're not gonna put in somebody that's just like we don't like or think is funny um yeah yeah so that that's the challenge it's funny to me because i mean hearing what a small i mean it was just a a couple how many you said about four to six groups Uh, six groups yeah six six groups yeah so to to hear it you know from such a humble small beginning uh to really what has now become a san francisco institution i mean when i moved here i was unaware of the festival uh in its extent i had seen a couple of things here and there online about it but actually coming here um i realized what an extensive and comprehensive festival it is i mean it's basically the south by southwest of comedy uh where instead of taking place over you know one weekend it you know takes over the whole town at all these different venues multiple shows going on at the same time i mean it truly is a beast in and of itself so uh i just want to thank you and, and janet and david for for founding it because it is Without a doubt, my favorite thing about living in San Francisco, uh, it feels like Christmas extends a little bit into January every year when it uh, when it comes out. So it's always cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank. We're we're like still thrilled and like can't believe it. It is what it is. Um, I mean, it, it's just so many things happen. Right, the fact that the reason we chose January was basically availability, because mm-hmm. like theaters would have holiday runs of stuff. And they would get done around Christmas, and then January was kind of a dead zone with openings because people weren't – they didn't have anything ready. Like if they were going to – they would do stuff for December, so the theaters weren't really in demand until like February at the earliest. So that's kind of why we mm-hmm. chose that. And we also figured like there would be more ability for coverage because there isn't as much stuff happening in the arts then overall. So I think yeah. that's kind of why we chose it. And it's kind of worked nicely for us. Like we work really, really hard in the fall um until you know until we announce and then you know we announce like a, a week or two before thanksgiving and then we're still working over the holidays but it's a lot calmer we're able to kind of mm-hmm. relax a little bit into it and then as soon as we get past new year's then it's like all you know all rocket jets go but um, yeah but it's kind of worked nicely and we like that it's in january and like that's the scary part now of all the COVID-19 of it all of not knowing like when we'll be able to do it next whether we can do it in January if we're going to need to move it or just skip a year and it's our 20th year coming up and we certainly want yeah. to do that um, but the scape of comedy is changing and, and the world and stuff so who knows I mean the festival definitely will come back it's not in any danger of not being a thing I don't think but um, it's just about kind of treading water until then and then figuring out what's next 
Yeah, exactly. And and that actually answered one of my questions, which is I'm kind of curious how the festival is put together. Um, obviously, if the festival takes place in January, it uh, sounds like planning starts in the fall there and you start to kind of curate from there. It's, it's sort of year round, but it's mostly like it gets kind of full tilt boogie in like end of summer. We usually like would work on outside lands and the comedy tent there. And when we get done with that, that's kind of when we would start focusing on this because if we did it earlier from a talent perspective they would just be like yeah i have no idea my schedule is in january like sure i'm interested but it would just be wasting everybody's time so we don't really start the talent outreach until like you know midsummer at the earliest you know late summer september or whatever um Mm -hmm. that's when it gets kind of intense and at this point because we've been going so long there's so many performers that look forward to coming every year and it's not a surprise to them they've kind of yeah put some you know, they have dates available for the most part. They want to be there, which is a lot easier for us, but it's definitely a lot to juggle and try to organize. And there's really just like, there's me, Dave and Janet. And then Jay Wurzler, who's our festival manager. He's our only like really like year round employee outside of the three of us. So, um, it's just kind of the four of us working on it most of the year. And then we start to bring on different department people in the fall. And then through the festival, as you bring a bunch of employees on, um, to help run the thing, but it's still very, you know, mom and pop shop, so to speak. Yeah. It's kind of funny sometimes because people will be like, Hey, I'm just going to swing by the sketch fest offices. And we're like, Oh, which apartment do you want to go to? Cause <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. we've always been able to give it the appearance of being something like, hopefully that's pretty well organized and stuff, but it's not, it's not a big corporate thing. There's, we've always been pretty cognizant of that. Like we, we're still independently run. We still do everything ourselves and we rely heavily on ticket sales to make it happen. So um, it's because mm-hmm. people come every year and they want to be there and stuff that it's it's been a joy to produce. That's so cool. I love the authentic nature of it. And I think when you look at the lineups over the years, it's very clear that everyone who's involved in it is passionate about comedy and passionate about uh, in, in this meta modern age, the, there's something called participatory culture. Uh, so it's like if you want culture to thrive and survive, you have to participate in it. So when there is an event happening in your city, uh, you go, you buy a ticket, and you enjoy yourself, right? And I think that it's because of participatory culture that uh, San Francisco has allowed Sketchfest to thrive. And uh, for, for there to be so many amazing, uh, talented individuals involved in the festival, uh, in the curation of the festival, in the performance of the festival, I mean, it's just, it's second to none. So it's just really cool to to see it thrive and uh, continue on in its 20th year coming up. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we're going to, we'll keep doing it. As long as we can, yeah, uh, for it's, sure. It's, it's you know, it's not what I ever thought I would be doing. Like, I didn't think I was going to be producing comedy to make, be my legacy and make my living, but I guess that's what it is. Um, and it's you know, it's it's adjacent to what I started doing. You know, I thought I was going to be a yeah. filmmaker or an actor or whatever, and I still dabble in acting. I still do bit parts on things, and um, I'm still active in that, but it's not the focus anymore. And it's kind of nice that it doesn't have to be. Yeah, because when you're in LA and you know, you're not getting work. It's a tough city. It's not, uh, <laughs> it's not a good place to live if you're not able to support yourself here. It's, it's tough. It's, it's rough. Yeah. There's so many people here with the same dream. There's way more people than there are parts and things like that too. So it's, I know it breaks a lot of people and I actually really like LA. Uh, I really love San Francisco and I'm kind of lucky that I get to kind of split my time in a sense. Because I spent a, yeah. you know, a full month in San Francisco when the festival's going, and then a few times throughout the year we'll go up to you know look at venues or work on those other festivals that we do some comedy stuff on. 
Um, so I definitely still feel like I'm a resident there in a lot of ways, but you know, this is kind of where I live full time. Um, they're just very different. I like driving. Yeah. I don't really do that in San Francisco. I do that here. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I love both, and uh, it's kind of funny to me that there's that you know rivalry. The the joke is that like San Francisco and LA have a rivalry, but LA is unaware of it. Yeah, I've heard that too. Because San Francisco, they will if you mention LA, they will hiss and boo you. It's really funny. It is so funny. Yeah, because <laughs> coming coming out from Michigan, it is so strange to just kind of be plopped down and to uh, experience the the rivalry that's been going on in San Francisco. But L.A. doesn't really care as much. I don't know. I feel like maybe it's just the San Francisco attitude that there's a little bit of uh, pretentiousness, maybe a little bit of snobbishness, uh, that we're like a real city and L.A. is just like a sprawling landscape. you got to drive here and there to, to get to. Um, but I, I find that stuff hilarious. Uh, but it definitely seems like you've kind of got the best of both worlds going. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I love about it is being able to split the time between the two places because I think they both are wonderful in different ways. I know a lot of people keep talking about how much San Francisco has changed as a city and how it's changing and some people like it, some people don't. And, you know, I definitely see that too. I've seen it. Like rent in both places is stupid. I mean, rent's not cheap in LA, yeah. but it's really stupid in San Francisco. And it's just crazy to me that people are able to swing that and live that lifestyle. I mean, that's sometimes like we struggle to keep our prices like good because we don't want it to be exorbitantly expensive. I think our, our shows price lower than they would if another promoter was doing it. We try to yeah. keep it manageable, but sometimes we'll be like looking at something and be like, uh, is $40 too much for the show? And I'll be like, it's San Francisco. It's fine. Like, oh yeah totally i mean people spend you know twelve dollars on avocado toast so i think we're okay right it's like the same show if it was being put on by a major promoter would probably be like forty dollars would be like the nosebleeds and then it would be like 75 100 yeah. like we just don't do that as much and like i know we could and we do sometimes when we have to if a show's super expensive we have no choice but we try mm-hmm. to like, you know price it fairly and make it so people can come and see a lot of stuff and you know enjoy the comedy thing we want to make it something that people can all go to not just people that have a lot of cash no and that's one of my favorite parts about it is that it's so accessible because there are so many different shows that take place during Sketchfest that really like on any budget you can find something and especially because it takes place over the course of you know what three weekends now uh you know it's a pretty awesome time to be able to just dip your toes in here and there and a lot of them are pretty inexpensive and so it's really cool to be able to uh you know offer entertainment like that and especially the amount of talented individuals that come out and perform is just second to none so it's just so awesome Thanks. Yeah, I think our average ticket price is roughly like $25. That's kind of where most things fall. But there's tons of shows that are 10 15 There's some that are free. Like, Yeah. And our, our most expensive shows, like, don't really top. I don't think we've ever topped 100 Like, I think it's been like mm-hmm. 75 maybe has been our highest on something that was like in a giant theater or super expensive. But, you know, we're, we're not trying to break the bank here for anybody we're trying to make it accessible we're trying to make it something that people can come and see shows and have fun yeah and and one of my favorite the, the 12 days of Sketchfest. uh you know every it seems like there's always like 12 shows for 12 days at 12 dollars a pop it's been happening in recent years so uh you know always nice to keep an eye out for that if you're budget conscious yeah yeah we like to do that every year and um sometimes people will get mad because they will have bought a ticket at full price or whatever and we'll be like 
there's sales all the time and everything. Like, you can't get mad at yeah. us for having it. Literally, there are 275 shows. 12 of them are on the special. So, like, it's, you know, we're not trying to be like, hoo um, we're trying to give people a chance to come see some shows that we think they'd enjoy and add, be able to get a discount on them. So yeah, it's that's so cool. And I, I mean, I could talk forever about Sketchfest, uh, but I do want to dive uh, just briefly back into your acting career a little bit um, because I was looking up uh, just some of the the roles that you had done, and I noticed one of your earliest roles was actually on Nash Bridges uh, in the '90s. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your time on that show? <laughs> well, that was one of the shows that filmed in San Francisco. And it was, it's kind of like Law and Order is for New York. Like, if you're an actor, you've been on it, uh, if you mm-hmm. live in those cities. So Nash Bridges was kind of a barometer for, like, if you're kind of an actual actor in San Francisco or not, in a sense. Because, like, if you got on that show, like, that's where most of the people are on. So I got on it twice in different roles. One is, like, uh, this guy Bennett Cole, whose brother had, like, committed a murder or something. Uh, and another time is this, like, student film director um, or theater director. That's awesome. So it was a different experience both times because the first time I was in like the A storyline, so it was with Don Johnson and Cheech Marin and um, you know that main stuff. And the second time it was the B storyline, so it was with like Jody Lynn O'Keefe and um, James Gammon, who hmm. like to me that was the biggest thrill meeting James Gammon like on that show. That was the biggest thrill for me out of anything because he I've always loved him as a character actor. I love character actors. Like I made my friend, we made like these character actor trading cards. Um, I never printed them outside of like just making them for fun. But so I've always been into that. And James Gammon was one that I've always been in love with because I love Major League and Lonesome Dove yeah. and all this stuff too. So I just remember being on set with him and being like, uh, and talking to him a little bit. And he was super nice. And I, we actually talked about Michigan State because it was in March when I filmed and we were talking about the tournament. And I was just like, oh yeah, I'm from Michigan, yeah, yeah. Michigan State. He's like, oh, Spartans, good team, good team. Izzo, you know, like that whole thing. And it was just like, this is crazy. That's so funny. He passed a few years later, but I was just thrilled that I had a chance to work with him and like meet him. Yes. Yeah. And work with him was like really, really cool. That is, yeah, that's just amazing. And to be able to, you know, connect with somebody like that, uh, especially after having admired them for so many years is just an amazing experience. Yeah, it was cool. Like acting in San Francisco was kind of tough. Like there was there's a lot of regional commercials and stuff, but not very many nationals. Those kind of filmed out of LA and the national commercials mm-hmm. were the ones that made you money. So I would go out on those a lot and I would book some things, but mostly regional stuff. And then, um, to get into the union, I've been in SAG since like 1996, I think, or something. It's been a long while. Um, yeah. but I got in because like, this is when there was two unions, SAG and after our different unions for the joint forces. And it was really tough to get into SAG after you could just pay for it and be in it. Like anybody could, mm-hmm. but SAG, you had to get, you know, enough credits and get Taft Heart lead in or whatever. And I would do extra work. I would do like background stuff, like Party of Five, I did background stuff on and things that like were supposedly took place in San Francisco, but they shot someplace else, but they would come here to shoot exteriors to like, see, look, we're in San Francisco. So yeah. Party of Five was one of those and uh, the movie Father's Day and actually one of the movies you yeah. have in your collection, George of the Jungle. Uh, oh yeah, classic. I, I was a featured extra in that, which was what gave me enough credits to Taft Hartley Hartley me into the union, so I could join SAG. Um, oh, that's hilarious! Which I did, and then shortly thereafter, was so I was just in SAG. I was like, yay! And then I booked a role as a reenactor on America's Most Wanted, 
in the oh, nice. Zodiac Killer episode. I played Mike Majot, who gets shot and killed by the Zodiac. He was uh, he was in that movie. He's like the real person. He was reclusive. He lives in Vallejo, where it took place, and then like he survived, but the woman in the car with him died. So then he just kind of lived a totally reclusive life in fear and shut away wow. and stuff. So when I saw the movie, the Fincher movie Zodiac, I was like really interested to see how he would be portrayed since I played yeah, him. Yeah, totally, because like, you played him before. Right, yeah. so that was cool. And I remember that being really fun too because like they fired a like a gun with like blanks or whatever in it and because of that you get hazard pay. Uh, so Ooh, I just remember nice. seeing that show up like, oh, I got a couple extra hundred dollars. This is amazing. Now, did, did you get shot in the uh, America's Most Wanted or was it the, the girlfriend next to you that got shot? We both got shot. I just survived. Okay. So did you have any squibs or anything? They did squib us a little bit. Yeah. There was something like blood that popped up. It wasn't massive though. It wasn't like a bunch of squibs. Okay. So we were seated in a car. We were basically like by the lake about to make out. Yeah. And then the... It was like in a Volkswagen Beetle, and we were like, specifically in the 60s or 70s or whatever, so it was made to look kind of shaggy. And I had kind of like the floppy hair with the middle part that was kind of all the rage in the yeah. mid-90s um, at the totally. time. Basically, there's a flashlight that is the Zodiac, but this flashlight comes and goes to the car, and we see that. And then I, I think my line was like, maybe it's the cops. You should get out your ID. And then they come <laughs> over to the door, and he shines the light in, and we look up and then look scared as we see the gun, and then bang, bang, bang. And then there was a you know shot that pulls away and shows us like it, you know bloody in the car or whatever um and then I, nice. I pick her up at the restaurant before that but it was really just kind of like this is cool like i just had so much weird work like uh, they, they tell you never to work with animals and kids and stuff like that but like i i did a marine world special when they were just adding roller coasters so like i was on there for two weeks with the channel two weather guy oh, bill wow. martin and we would go on rides and there's this whole plot about me like going back and forth to pretending I was my grandmother. It was really silly. Um, <laughs> so I'd like walk around in like full on like grandma drag at um, at Green Roll when amazing. it was open, and like I remember getting all these weird looks and be like, "Yeah, I'm dressed like I'm weird. I dress as a grandma and go to amusement parks." It's like obviously there's a film crew with me, weirdos. But um, yeah, but I just remember like that being like I there was a scene where I had to like I had an orangutan like on my sh- like like sitting on my lap with his arms draped around me. I was feeding it gummy bears, and I was just like, "This is so cool! <laughs> I would never have a chance to hold an orangutan like this without paying a lot for it." Yeah. Um. So yeah, I would get That's weird, amazing. weird gigs. Yeah, but I mean, having a variety like that allows you to experience so many different types of you know acting, whether it be you know, dramatic acting or acting with an orangutan or, you know, kids and things like that. It allows you to have a wider range of, of things that you've done. So that, that's so cool that you got a chance to kind of experience all of that. Yeah, I wouldn't turn anything down. I got this weird gig where, like, some startup was trying to, like, some company that was being used for startups for some sort of streaming thing or something back in the day would go around to different, like, startup companies in, like, a motorhome. And then, like, the employees would come out, like, at lunchtime, and they would give them, like, there would be, like, cornhole and games and food and drinks and stuff as, like, a thank you for using our service or whatever. And their mascot was, like, a like a Pink Panther, but he was blue, like a big blue cat. And so they needed somebody <laughs> that was, like, my size specifications to wear this mascot outfit at these things and just kind of go around <laughs> and, like, you know, like, strike poses and do photos and be kind of goofy and stuff. So... I just remember being in this thing, this like blue leotard thing with this cat hat 
and like going to yeah. these startups where all these like you know tech nerds are coming out and uh, being like, "That's yep, so funny." This is a gig I took. All right, sure. I'll look back on this one day and be like, "All right, I did that." That is so funny. Uh, it's it's hilarious because you've popped up in just different things here and there, and uh, as just a fan kind of watching on the side, it's always kind of interesting because you you never know quite where you're going to pop up next, uh, just in different roles. In fact, I, I last saw you on uh, Good Girls. Uh, where you played the the random guy at Starbucks, uh, yes. uh, which was really funny. Uh, now it may be internet rumor, but I heard that you did your own stunts for that role. I sh- Is that true? I sure did. Yeah, it was tough, man. It's you know took a lot of yeah. It really, was hard to stand in that Starbucks line. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that coffee was really hot. I was you know kind of worried there for you. It was actually what was fun about that thing was is. For my podcast, for Pop My Culture, I had had Retta on like a couple years previous, so I knew Retta a little bit. And uh, mm-hmm. also, I knew Mae Whitman a little bit, even though I wasn't in scenes with her on that day. But I remember getting the part and stuff, and I did, it was a self tape of something I shot at home, and they, you know, they chose me, and I was like, great. Um, and being on set, and then like working with Retta for a little while, and then she's like, why do I know you? And I'm like, you're on my podcast, Pop Michael. She's like, cool. Oh, my God. Like, couldn't figure it out at first because why would it be me? <laughs> um, but what's funny yeah. about that was is, like, when it was on, it was the season two premiere episode. When it was on TV, when it actually premiered, a couple people were like, oh, my God, I saw you on Good Girls. The last, like, couple months, like, weekly, I've been getting somebody reaching out, sending me a screenshot because now it's on Netflix. Once it went to Netflix on streaming, that's when everybody saw it. That's so funny. Well, and especially because people are just sitting around in quarantine right now, and they're probably binging these shows that they've been meaning to check out for a while and now have the time to do so. Oh, yeah. It's it's crazy, though. It's like <laughs> back in the day, like if you were on network television, it was such a big deal, and you'd tell everybody, and they'd be like, you know, crowded around the TV set. Now it's like, oh, yeah. I saw you two months later on streaming. It's so funny how that's changed, right? There's a little bit of a delayed reaction. Um, one of the one of the tenets of, of metamodernism is the death of monoculture, how the fact that there really isn't as much one thing that we as a culture gravitate towards. Uh, you know, people often say that there's never going to be a band as big as the Beatles again because the Beatles were able to kind of capture everyone's uh, rapture and, and imagination for a while. Um, but now with everything so fragmented and splintered, uh, it's tough to have people unite around one particular cultural item all at once so that's why you tend to have kind of the fragmented nature of you know oh i'm gonna watch a season here or gonna do that there uh people don't seem to kind of gather and watch something together as a collective uh, you know hive mind as, as we used to oh yeah totally not at all i mean and also like part of that is that now it's like you know a haystack of needles so there's yeah. so much that back in the day there wasn't as much selection. There was, you know, uh, there were tons of bands. Sure, you just didn't know about very many of them because they weren't on a label, mm-hmm. they weren't signed, they weren't putting a CD, or, you know, record out that was necessarily in shops or whatever. So I feel like back in the day it was a lot easier for people to get around things because you know there was water. There was actual water cooler talk. Now there's not. Oh, yeah. You know, like it's. There's very few shows that everybody watches. There's not that many cultural things of like, like I mean, honestly, the last last thing was like Tiger King and like that. Even I got sick of that mm-hmm. shit real fast. But um, it's so rare yeah. that there's anything that captures the zeitgeist like that that everybody can talk about. 
you like if you're with your friends, you're like, oh my god, did you watch uh, Better Call Saul? Like two people are like, yep, and the other people are like, no. Like it's like it's so hard to find yeah. those people. Like, you have to go to a specialized place to <laughs> find those people to discuss. And like heaven forbid if you're behind on something because it gets spoiled on social media immediately. But yeah, just the culture's changed in that. Yeah, and it makes it difficult to be able to dive into things with your friends. You know, uh, growing up in in high school, the office was our monoculture. Uh, you know, I went to a small high school and, and virtually everyone would watch The Office. And that was something that was pretty much the last, I, I want to say, like piece of monoculture that I was able to really experience. And, you know, nowadays there's so many different TV shows out there and everyone's OK, I'm only on season two. Don't tell me what happens in season four. You know, some people are like, oh, I've been meaning to start that. I haven't watched it yet. So it's tough to really be able to connect with somebody on that level unless they've actually taking the time to watch it like you have yeah i mean there's not that much anymore like the last thing i kind of really remember that being was like lost everybody was watching Mm -hmm. lost like when the oh my god what's in the hatch when the finale happened like we had a watch party you know like those are kinds of things that happened then but i feel like that's really died off yeah and especially i think it's also because of the availability of an entire season at once i mean i'm all for binge watching but i do think that there is value in a weekly episodic uh, release schedule uh, simply because there's more um, discussion around what's going to happen next. I mean, when I was in college, Breaking Bad was airing, and everyone would talk about what was going to happen next in terms of, you know, oh, you know, what's going to happen to Walt next week? And, you know, nowadays, if they just drop the whole season on Netflix at once, there really isn't as much time to kind of sit and digest and talk about what happened. It's just kind of on to the next episode without really much uh, consideration. Yeah, I don't like binge culture. I don't like the binge. I, I have a hard time watching more than like two or three episodes or something. Like after that, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. let's move on to something else in my day. Like I don't like to sit down and watch. Like I know there are people that are like, oh yeah, I watched you know season one of Safe yesterday and I watched the whole thing. Like it's harder for me to do. Like I'm two or three, four tops. Like that's kind of where I can get. And I love the weekly release thing. I'm so glad that that Disney Plus did the Mandalorian weekly. Because mm-hmm. if you could imagine if they had released that all at once, like. And with people's obsession with Star Wars, that would have been spoiled on social so fast. Oh, yeah. And I don't like that pressure of like, well, I better watch this immediately or it's going to get completely spoiled for me. At least with the weekly episode, it's like I can watch this one hour and be caught up and not worry about like having it spoiled or miss something. Yeah, totally. And I almost wonder if it's like a generational thing. Um, because we actually watched TV back in the day, uh, you know, where you would just watch one episode of something and then you move on to something else. Uh, but I think a lot of kids today, uh, you know, they, some people have only known Netflix. And so that's really kind of their their touchstone for being able to consume things. So I wonder if, uh, you know, as you go younger, uh, the uh, likelihood to binge may increase there. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Yeah, 100%. I think it's just definitely different, like how we're conditioned to consume things. Because, like, pace of living is so different now, too, that I I do and I don't love the fact that stuff is, is immediate gratification in a lot of ways. Like, I, we get a lot done for Sketchfest because we can get answers fast, because we can do things online and share sheets and things and do stuff. But, you know, back in the day, and I've said this on other podcasts and things, too, but, like, if you would call somebody and you miss them, you'd leave a message on their answering machine. And they would call you back the next day, and when they called you back, you'd be like, hey, thanks for getting back to me so fast. 
Whereas yeah. now, if I text you and 15 minutes go by, it's like, what the fuck? Do you hate me? Are you dead? What's going on? Like, it's that yeah. level of, like, immediate call and response gratification or stuff that that, that pace of, like, you got to do it now, 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 now. Like, I just – I don't like that. I feel like we've all lost our patience and our attention spans because of that, which is why I think a lot of people, like, are so – there's so much anger in the world about a lot of things, but – I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people have no patience. And so anything that tries their patience, they immediately rebel against. It's, that resonates with me so much. Uh, it's, it's hilarious because of how uh, conditioned we get to having things uh, immediately. Um, one of uh, the things you can actually look at, uh, specifically iPhone 3G, um, when Steve Jobs gets up on stage and starts introducing the iPhone, uh, he actually loads the New York Times, and you can go on YouTube and watch it, and it's a full, like, 60 seconds to load this web page. And at the time, in, like, 2008, everyone's like, wow, this is so fast. Well, I have terrible internet, and sometimes it takes a full minute to load a web page, sometimes on my phone, and I just, I'm seething with anger uh, because of how uh, slowly this web page is loading. So it's so strange how we just get conditioned to wanting something so quickly and having that immediacy. And uh, I don't know, I definitely see that it, it almost artificially builds up frustration in people um, because they're just conditioned to getting something now uh, when in actuality things weren't like that for the longest time. And we're just now kind of hitting that peak where uh, things are so immediate. Yeah, it's crazy. And also like phones in general, like, you know, I have an iPhone 11 or whatever. I'm on it a lot. But at the same time, it's like I get a little – sometimes I'll go to the mall, right? I live pretty close to the Century City Mall, which is this big mall down here. I'll go down there and like I play Pokemon Go a lot, so I'm on my phone doing that. But I'll be down there and I'll just take a second I'll look up and every single person, I would say 8 out of 10, if not 9 out of 10 people are looking down at their phones while they're walking around. Everybody. It's just yeah. it's just what it is. It's like when did it get to the point where like we can't even put our phones in our pockets to like walk around someplace? Like we have to have yeah. it out even then. Like it, don't even get me started when you go to a movie and people are oh like gosh, there's yeah. these glowing screens everywhere and people are like just checking Facebook and Instagram. I'm like really what are you doing? Why are you even here? Like I don't get that. Like is your are you a doctor? Are you on a deadline? How yeah. how important how important do you think you are that your shit can't wait two hours for you to watch this movie and if it can't don't go to movies just stream shit at home because clearly that's what you're built for and you're like it takes me out of the movie so much and i get these fucking glowing screens all over the theater i can't not look at those because i always sit towards the Mm -hmm. back and i just see that and it just makes me crazy heaven forbid people to get on their phones and actually start having conversations because that happens oh my gosh i mean that's always happened but it's just so much worse now um, that everybody has these personal computer devices. Yeah, it, it is wild uh, because you think about something called uh, convergence, and that's basically where all of these different electronic devices are now in one. So if we take it back just a, a few years, if you wanted to take pictures, you had a camera. If you want to listen to something, you had a Walkman. If you wanted to read something, you had a book. Like you wanted maps, you had an actual map. It's like now all of these separate things are in one device. So that device becomes so much more essential in people's lives because it does so many different things. The problem is, is that uh, you know you have to recognize it's a tool, and you use a tool to accomplish a task. But so many people are just kind of addicted to the nature of being on your phone. 
Um, so I can imagine as people are kind of walking around. I mean, I know in uh, Honolulu, where my wife grew up, uh, they actually have banned walking in the streets with uh, being on your cell phone. So you can actually get a ticket if you are looking down at your cell phone while just walking in a crosswalk. So at least there's somebody trying to do something about this epidemic so people don't get hit by cars or something. Yeah, I mean, there's some kid, like teenage girl in New York that walked, was looking at her phone and walked into an open manhole cover and broke her leg. Oh, my gosh. And then, like, tried to sue the city. And I think that they, like, like settled or something. But, you know, that thing was open, but it had cones around it or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, she walked right into it. And, like, that's the city's fault. Okay. Yeah. Um, because, you know, uh, heaven forbid people take responsibility for anything. Oh, for sure. It's it's just like it, I just really hate that the world has become about like me culture instead of us culture. And yeah, um, I mean, I still think people at heart are good. And I still think that they come together in the, you know, the face of tragedy. You know, whenever something major happens like 9-11 or whatever, people band together and, and that's when they put things aside. But otherwise, it's like if you're driving slow – in the left lane fucking die like it's just it's <laughs> yeah. just what it is now and it's just weird to me and i guess it's always been that way in some way shape or form but i think that mm-hmm. the culture has shifted in a lot of ways and the way people are brought up with manners and stuff too which is funny because like people in the south are still often raised to say you know yes ma'am yes sir you know and you know open doors and try to be polite which is, I think is lost in a lot of things too. Yeah. But at the same time, that area too is also full of some people that also have the most like anger and hatred out of anywhere yeah. else. So it's kind of this weird double thing. But I just feel like that manners are out the fucking door now, and it's mm-hmm. people don't don't care. And heaven forbid you ever criticize somebody who's like some parent whose kid is like running like crazy and getting in people's faces. Then it's just like yeah. mind your own business. And it's like I'm trying to. Um, but kids not allowing it. So yeah, I don't know that it's that whole me, 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 me thing. And it's just kind of, it's kind of sad. You know, I, I hate to point fingers, but I definitely see the generation that came after me. Uh, you know, people call them Gen Z years or, you know, what have you, basically the Snapchat generation. And, uh, you can see what an effect growing up having, I mean, these kids never really knew a time without the internet or without smartphones and things like that. And so, you know, now kids are in fourth, sixth grade and they've got an iPhone and all their friends are on social media. And it, I honestly think that psychologically, I think that does something to a kid at such a young age, having that focus on themselves and and carrying around this device in your pocket where you can, you know, take selfies all day. And I never got into the selfie craze and things like that. Um, But definitely people younger than myself did. And it just seems so uh, self-centered. And like, I don't want to come off as judgmental or anything like that. But at the same time, I do think that it's important to be able to, you know, look outside of yourself. You know, Reggie Watts has a saying, uh, when in doubt, zoom out. You know, so being able to zoom out of your perspective and kind of seeing things in a larger context. And I I honestly think it's kind of lost on some people who just are looking at their phones all day. Yeah, I mean, I honestly like I wouldn't I am glad I was raised when I was like I have I feel like my generation is the ones that had both things. We had the start of a lot of technology, but we also had the kind of clunkier days of it, too. So we've kind of had both paces of living, which is good. I don't. I feel sorry for a lot of the kids coming up now 
especially like the teens and stuff like that too, who get their entire self-worth and validation from Instagram, from people yeah. liking things. If they don't get enough likes, they feel bad about themselves. If like that, mm-hmm. that to me is like so fucking sad. Like, yeah, I don't like that people's self-worth is defined by technology and approval of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And people go, you know, create these personas that aren't them because they think that people yeah. are going to like that better. And I just, uh, I don't know. That whole thing kind of bumps me out. Oh, I was going to say the exact same thing. Uh, you know, it is it is really sad. And I think that even though I'm a bit younger than you, I feel like we're in a similar generation, which is that we were some of the last people to grow up with actual toys. You know, kids today, they all have digital toys or video games and things like that. Um, but I think we were kind of the bridge between analog and digital. And, and these kids today only know digital. So it's a very different upbringing they have and a very different uh you know, attitude they have towards the world and towards their, the friends around them. So I don't know. It's interesting to see these cultural divides happen. Totally. So I wanted to uh, kind of touch on life in L.A. Um, because I know you mentioned you moved to L.A. in, what, 2003? Yeah, it was right after the second SF Sketch Fest. So I think it was, yeah, 2003. Okay. It would have been like summer 2003. Nice. And what was that move like? Did you drive down? You have a rental van? Uh, yeah, we kind of uh, packed things up in a, a big uh, van and like drove it down in one of those like U-Hauls. And yeah, it's, I, I ended up, I lived, for the first year I was here, I lived in Santa Monica uh, in this like, so I was a friend of a friend who I had to live with who is a cruise ship comic and he oh, had nice. a four-year-old son and he was divorced but he uh so basically i had my own room at this place in a very nice area of santa monica my own parking space and two weeks out of the month he would just be gone so in, a, in an effect i was like watching the house i had the house to myself and then the other two weeks he would be there with his at the time four-year-old son so it was like I went back and forth from having like this really cool bachelor pad in a sense to also having this like really cool f- like f- family system built in. I feel like that's a sitcom waiting to happen. You know, two weeks of having a bachelor pad and two weeks of living a family life. Yeah, well, totally. Um, that's kind of what it was like. So the first year I was there, um, so it was super great and I loved it. And I was paying like $500 a month, which is like nothing, especially for L.A. Yeah. Um, and thank cheap. God because like I didn't have a lot of money and – work was scarce like i couldn't i wanted to work at video stores because that's what i had done and at the time i couldn't mm-hmm. find anything they're like you have a great resume we're not hiring like that's basically what it was um i finally oh, got man. a job at borders when those were around um yeah. on the promenade in santa monica but on the ipt team the inventory control team or whatever so we would work from mm-hmm. 5 a.m to 11 a.m every day Wow. And I'm not a morning person, so this is hell for me. Yeah. And it was also part-time, so I would work – I would because it was only like five hours on a shift or whatever, um, five or six hours or whatever. And we, I would do that four days a week or five days a week, so I was only making part-time money. But I was having to get up you know, for a 5 a.m. shift for that. I, I worked at this job for like a year or two, but it was mostly like we would be the ones in the receiving area that would take the – open the boxes up for the books and the DVDs and the CDs and stuff and put them on a cart in the different sections and then wheel them out and put them on the shelves before the store opened. Um, but because I had such a like background in movies and music, cause I always loved music too. Um, the, I would be the one to stock the third floor most of the time, which was of the media stuff. Yeah. So I would go up there and I, you know, put all the movies and stuff. I made, I made a criterion section. They didn't have that. Yeah. Um, like that kind of stuff and like i would they would have these promotional cds that 
the company's labels had sent to like you know play in store or whatever so I, like before the store would open i would like put one of these cds on and i would stock things up if i was on the floor like half, sometimes i'd be in the receiving room putting stuff on carts mm-hmm. um but so it kind of like introduced me to a lot of bands at the time that like i didn't know anything about but like here's the promo cd for snow patrol and for keen and that kind of stuff too so i got yeah. super those bands because they were just there um and then after periodically they would like restock the things and then they would just let us take things that were like because yeah, they're just promo copies so that's how i kind of got a lot of free cds and stuff too so i was nice. working there and um it was fine but like i just remember like some of the people i worked with were like wait you have a college degree i was like yeah like that was like <laughs> they couldn't believe i was doing that i was like well a college degree doesn't mean jack shit like it doesn't <laughs> matter like uh, for the work i want to do i can't get those jobs right now so like i'm doing this because at least it's like adjacent to what i love um yeah. and then i finally got a job at second spin which was like a new and used cds dvds uh kind of place yeah i i even remember second spin yeah good stuff yeah there's a couple of those i worked on the one on wilshire down here for several years and i was uh, an assistant manager which was like which is great i could do you know some ordering for things and i would be the one on the new release days to like put them out and stuff and receive them and that kind of stuff too And, and it was great for a long time um and then it got bought by the people that own Sam Goody Transworld. And that's when it got a little shitty because that's when yeah. it started to be like, okay, you need to uh, tell the people when they're buying their CDs that we have toilet lip gloss or whatever. It was like <laughs> bullshit like that. That like, I've always been anti corporate from that side of things. Like, I don't like it when you go to some place and you know the person is required to tell you, to ask you to buy four other things. Yeah. I've never liked that. I've never liked that. To me, that's like, it's just like I'm here. I want to give you money. I'm buying these like three CDs and this DVD, and now you're asking me if I want uh like a like I remember at Borders it was we had to ask people if they wanted these lint truffles or whatever. They had those for a dollar. Like like what the fuck does that have to do with books and like what why? Yeah, I don't wow. understand that. So that kind of stuff was happening. We're having to say add-ons. We get secret shopped or whatever, and they would like make it so you had to be like drop whatever you were doing, walk somebody over to the thing, physically put the CD in their hand, tell them like, oh, wow, you like, you know, Martina McBride? Have you checked out Reba McIntyre? Whatever. (laughs) Fucking garbage. But like people loved us because we had such good knowledge and stuff and we knew where things were and whatever that stuff too. But also because they didn't want to fucking pay people, we were short staffed all the time. So like on on, like an opening shift, it would be me and one other person or sometimes just me, you know, for a couple (laughs) hours. And so, like, we would get secret shopped, and I would be having to do buybacks, so people would be bringing in, like, crates of CDs and movies and stuff like that, too, to, like, you know, purchase. They also had a fucking Ticketmaster kiosk, which I had to do, too, um, and then actually check people out when they wanted to buy things. But then you get secret shopped, and somebody would come in and be like, hey, do you have, you know, Radiohead? And it'd be like, I'm in the middle of doing a buy, you know, like I'm, I'm the only person in the store and I would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're right there in pop rock under our radio head. Like just go down the center aisle. It's right there. And they'd be like, thanks. And they would go and they would find it and they would come back and I would sell it to them or whatever. And that's when they found everything, whatever. It was a good transaction. And the review would get the secret shopping review would be good. Like they would say like, they're super knowledgeable and friendly and blah, 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 whatever. But then they would ding you on things and be like, well, you didn't walk on them, put the CD in their hand. So that's <laughs> negative four, like whatever, that kind of stuff. So sometimes oh like my, gosh. my manager would be like, well, you got a pretty good shot, but I got to write you up for blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I'm not going to take a write up. Like I would just like, I would 
full on like just say no. He's like, what do you mean no? I was like, no. You realize like this is like basically saying like, hey, fight this war for me. Here's a pencil. Like it's fucking bullshit. And I would basically be like, I'm working as hard as I can. We're short staffed. I'm giving as much attention as I can to everything. Like this person literally said they had a good shopping experience. But because I didn't stop what I was doing, walk over to the section and put it in their hand, and then asking them whatever else they would they wanted, I'm a bad employee and i'm (laughs) stopping the thing i'm doing for another customer like how is that a thing so that that kind of corporate bullshit is what would make me crazy about that stuff and would honestly like started killing a lot of those things that were cool and that's why a lot of that shit moved to streaming because they took selection away they they didn't care about that shit they wanted you to just push the things with price points that's why when you Mm -hmm. would go to like a best buy they would always ask if you wanted to buy monster cable because that's where they're like fucking like markup was it'd be like a f- oh they've got huge margins on monster cables yeah so that's what they would do it'd be like it's it's 45 dollars it's worth it, it's gold plated blah 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 and they paid five dollars for it like that's why they wanted you to do that mm-hmm. they didn't get as much of a margin on the tv so of course that's why they're going to give you the add-ons at least those add-ons make sense because you need the course to connect it yeah but, but half the time these add-ons make zero sense you don't need the chocolate truffles to listen to radiohead right exactly that's the kind of shit that started to make me a little crazy that's why i've always been sort of leery of corporate interference and things and yeah. taking things that were pure and cool and making them shitty and i understand a lot of those things weren't necessarily lucrative and they they sold them because they weren't lucrative because they weren't selling truffles with big markups mm-hmm. but it also just kind of like killed the experience and i understand that's like i mean that's why places are you know thriving or at least tre- treading water and like you know the indie record stores and stuff like that too is because they do cater to the specialty clientele that want to go and hold yeah. things and talk about music and movies or whatever but at the same time like they're not making a lot of money they're barely keeping the lights on and having a brick and mortar in this day and age is kind of a disaster when you have the internet to sign everything so yeah. and it's just different it's just i it's it's hard to do any sort of business so i get it but it's certainly definitely tainted the experience for me. Definitely. I mean, there's always been somewhat of a tug of war between financial viability and also artistic integrity, um, just based on the fact that sometimes the best things aren't exactly super marketable. And sometimes, you know, I'm a big fan of independent music, indie films, things like that. And some of these films don't really have broad mass appeal. Um, So for them to really get their, uh, you know, recoup their costs, uh, it has to almost spread by word of mouth and and kind of the fan base uh, taking over and and spreading the word about it like i'll never ever accuse somebody of selling out because honestly like you need money to live so mm-hmm. do whatever you got to do and like you're you're under no obligation to create the kind of art i like none mm-hmm. like that's what i think people get stupid about like it makes me crazy online it's like it's this, this sense of entitlement yeah. so it's just the constant like hey i don't like the new album you suck fuck you like that constant <laughs> thing and or just like, you know, we see it at Sketchfest or other things too. It's just like, we'll release this lineup that has, you know, a thousand performers on it overall. But, you know, hundreds of headliners, tons of big show reunions, movie reunions, big stars. And people will look at it and be like, what, no Gary Shandling? Or whatever. And be like, well, okay, one, he's dead. But two, yeah. um, we did have him and he was amazing. But like, in theory, like, th- that's what they concentrate on. Not the fact that we've reunited the cast of this or this movie thing. It's just the fact that this one thing isn't on the lineup. And sometimes it's like, we asked that person. They weren't mm-hmm. available. They didn't want to do it. Or they just, or shooting or something like that. It's just, yeah. but this person decided that that's what they wanted. And because they're not getting it, they have to let us know and take us down a peg or whatever. Like, that kind of shit makes me crazy and that's in general like i just don't 
especially with things that are free. Mm-hmm. Like when people complain about podcast shit, like, you know, yeah. when we did pop my culture all those years, like we weren't making money on it really. Like we occasionally would get a sponsor, which would give you a little bit of money, which is why you have to do those ads. And then people would bitch about the ads and you're like, it's costing you nothing. It's free. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you want us to do. You want me to give you content, but you certainly don't want to pay a penny for it. And then you want to criticize it. Okay. Great. So I guess they want to be paid for listening to your podcast. I don't know. Right. I would just constantly be like, I'm happy to refund your free. Like, that's kind of what I would say. And so I don't know. It's just like the sense of entitlement in general nowadays, like, just kind of makes me a little crazy. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I definitely see it here in in San Francisco a lot, too. I mean, I love the city. Don't get me wrong. But they're definitely in in some people that that lived here. um, We've got our NIMBYs, uh, the not in my backyard. Uh, types and they will uh, you know fight to the to the death about you know this restaurant opening in their neighborhood or this apartment complex going up just based on the fact that it'll cast a shadow near something and and things like that i mean people get all up in arms about very minor things at, at certain times and especially when it comes to content that's available digitally uh you know so many people uh, expect, I don't know, this, this certain level of interaction or, or quality. And at the end of the day, it's like you didn't do anything to create this content. You're just sitting there consuming it. Uh, so I think the fact that stuff like this exists in the first place is amazing. And and for you to just, like, critique it and, and to knock it down a peg just seems kind of, I don't know, infantile. It's just like you're not under no obligation to consume this. So just fucking don't. Like, yeah. that's always been my thing is like, if I don't like something, I just don't do that anymore. <laughs> I just don't, I don't really criticize things openly that often unless something is really egregious. But like, for the most part, like, just move on. Like, I don't, I don't understand going on to iTunes and leaving a negative review because you don't mm-hmm. like something. Like, just fucking don't leave a review. <laughs> it's like the world is big enough where you can just listen to another record, you know? Yeah, it's like the Yelp reviewers that think they're the most powerful people in the fucking world. They, they take down a take down a restaurant. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the keyboard warriors. I, that makes me crazy. Like people, like my brother-in-law down here is like a kind of a celebrity chef. He's got a couple of restaurants, and they're great. And like, what is his main restaurant? Manhattan Beach Post is um, is like a great restaurant, and it's got a very strong Twitter like presence, like, like uh, Yelp review stuff. But there would be people that leave mm-hmm. one star who are like, "Hey, went here on a Friday night, couldn't get a table, one star." Like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? You didn't even eat yeah. there. You literally couldn't get a table because you're a moron who thought you could go on a Friday night at prime time and just walk in and get a seat at a popular mm-hmm. restaurant. You can't. You can't do that. So you're gonna give it one star and take it down a peg. What the fuck does that mean? I d- like yeah, that's so the kind crazy. of shit that makes me nuts. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's it's really frustrating just based on the fact that a lot of the times these reviews, the negative reviews, are based on maybe one bad experience. And they can taint the entire review system um, just based on that. And I've seen, uh, you know, here in San Francisco, a lot of these restaurants live or die by some of these Yelp reviews. So, uh, you know, there have been times where restaurants have been, uh, you, you find that they've actually been falsifying their uh, Yelp reviews. They've been boosting them uh, unnecessarily. And then you also see the opposite, uh, which is you'll see one disgruntled person continuously posting on that under different accounts and things like that. So it I, it amazes me how petty people will be about that sort of stuff. I mean, my whole thing with is like if you don't if I don't like a restaurant or I have a bad experience, I just don't go back to that restaurant. Um, yeah. If it's something really egregious, I'll write them an email privately about something mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, like I'm not looking for handouts, yeah. but for the most part, I just won't. 
frequent that place and i don't take it out on the server i still tip them the 20 percent. you know yeah um it's just you know, just don't go back that's it yeah that's all i gotta Seems do pretty straightforward yeah exactly so I did want to talk a little bit about uh, the Pop My Culture podcast. Uh, you had mentioned it before, um, but uh, specifically, like, what made you want to start a podcast? What kind of inspired you to do that? I mean, it was pretty much the festival because we were doing podcasts live at the fest. And this is like Pop My Culture started kind of in the second wave. So it was still pretty early, but it wasn't one of the first ones. But it wasn't before everybody had a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was still room for it i guess you could say um but at the festival we would do live versions of like at the time and they we still do them like never not funny yeah um, doug loves movies comedy bang bang like those are the ones that were kind of like thriving then nerdist started at kind of the same time we did mm-hmm. roughly so by the time we got to episode 200 they're on like 800 because they released yeah. a lot more often but um you know the, it was the kind of thing where i was like well i know a lot about movies and music and pop culture in general i consume it i love it so i would love to talk about that and then vanessa raglan who i've known for a long time was in improv teams with me over at the west side comedy theater here in la where i do a lot of stuff still and i like i love her she's funny she's hilarious she's very different from me very kooky and out there and has a great energy and stuff so i thought it would be kind of we'd be kind of a fun pair and i wanted to host a podcast with a woman like i didn't want so many at the time and still are like these total like sausage fests that are just like yeah. bros broing out about bro things so I, I just thought it would be good for us to do it together and and because of the festival i had connections to people and my thought was like well I'm not famous. Vanessa's not famous. But if we get people on who are famous and we interview them and it's a fun show, then people will find us. So that was Mm -hmm. kind of the idea of it. So I got Sam Levine to be the first guest because I've known him for a long time through the festival. Um, Nice. And and it's kind of called in favors initially for people. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Paul Tompkins came out early, Thomas Lennon and Chris Hardwick and all those people. Linda Cardellini, who I knew a little bit at the time. Yeah. Um, so we just kind of started doing that, and and the format was one. I was like, well, we'll just run down what's going on in pop culture, and then we'll transition to an interview with the people about their career, and then we'll just do fun shit in the last third. We'll play these weird games. Like Vanessa would – we would do these Vanessa's five questions, and I would come up with like sometimes a trivia game or this or that about their own career or whatever and just kind of have fun goofing off. And I think we just kind of hit something. Like it just really worked, and we had a fun time doing it. Um, and then – early on i think we had done like 30 episodes maybe um i got this call from chris hardwick uh, being like hey congratulations and i was like what are you talking about and he's like you guys are on the rolling stone top 10 podcast i was like what he's like you're, n- you're number two and i was at disneyland on this day i remember this yeah. very much and i'd be like wait what so he sent me a link but the link just went to the second page which was like five to ten i was like i don't see us and he's like you're number two hold on and like, so i found this other link and i was looking to be like holy shit like the number one was the pod f tomcast and we were number two and like i think wtf wow. was like number three or something or whatever but like we were on this thing and it was just like it was very complimentary and saying that you know we were you know have fun with the pop culture stuff it was really fun blah 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 but that kind of like blew us up oh yeah i can imagine so i mean that was a huge honor i mean i remember reading that list and being like wow this is just so cool yeah we we were like shocked and i told vanessa too at the time i was like well okay this is things are gonna get different now you're gonna start getting some hate because uh like (laughs) mb2 like we're just gonna like the bigger you get the boo birds are gonna come out so 
Um, and like we joined the Nerdist Podcast Network at the time when we got to episode like 65 or so. And we ended at like 217, I think. So mm-hmm. most of it was out there in a way that was fairly out there. We made a few other lists here and there and stuff. And we had a pretty decent amount of fans that would listen and stuff and a good amount of reviews and mostly positive things, but some bad things, you know, too. But yeah. Vanessa was very polarizing. People either absolutely loved her or really hated her. I was always like, Cole's okay. Like, I pretty much always ended up in the middle. It's like, I'm like, I actually would rather be loved or hated yeah. <laughs> versus like, just like, meh, right, whatever. Um, but we did that for a long time until it just became kind of, it was always hard to get guests. It became a bit of a chore. And mm-hmm. uh, Vanessa, like, had a kid. She's honest, two and stuff. And she was just like, I just don't really want to, you know, I, I want to focus on motherhood and um not interviewing people anymore and she's like because i don't have time to watch these movies and tv things i feel like i don't know anything anymore and it was just kind of like wasn't really fun anymore and we kind of made the decision to like well if it gets to the point where it just really feels like work and not as much joy as it was then we'll we'll you know retire it which is what we did um and since then like she now co-runs dynasty typewriter down here which is an amazing venue and we still do stuff periodically so um and we miss it but we had a good, you know, six or eight year run or something. So yeah, it was really solid. And I, I realize there's probably people listening to this podcast that may not have heard of Pop My Culture. So if you are one of those people, go ahead and pause the podcast right now. Go into the podcast app, check out Pop My Culture. Uh, honestly, throughout the years, it has been a virtual compendium of some of my favorite discussions with some of my favorite people in comedy. So definitely worth checking out. Yeah, there's a lot of amazing guests that we've got over the years and. Like I and I love character actors. There's a lot of those, but you know, there's we got cool people. Like our hundredth episode was Weird Al. Our 150 was Patton Oswalt. Like we've we've had some really cool people on the show, and um, so I would say like as far as where to start, just find somebody you like. Actually, <laughs> like pick pick a guest that you're interested in, and uh, just start there. That's the easiest yeah, way to do it. Definitely, and it's just so cool to be able to have something like that kind of as like an audio testament to the work that you've been doing because uh, one of my favorite things is going back and finding uh, clips here and there of different Sketchfest events. I mean, I'm really interested in kind of the curation and archival of Sketchfest events and comedy in general. Uh, and I, I am kind of curious specifically about the Sketchfest archives. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so we had never had any idea of releasing these videos. We've always kind of done archival videos of stuff just for us to have. It would usually just be one camera set up someplace. Uh, never any intention of having it seen be seen publicly. But we wanted, you know, to mark the stuff. So we would tape, you know, a dozen shows every year, if not more. So we have 19 years of archived digital content. And with the kind of shutdown of everything right now and us realizing, like, it's not going to be business as usual for a while, we're like, how can we sort of generate a little bit of money while things are down? And we realized we had all these recordings of these amazing events that happened one time and never happened again. So we decided to start, like, releasing these videos with, you know, the talent approval and venue approval and all that stuff, too, and splitting the revenue with the talent and with some charities and with some other, like, uh, venues and stuff that are struggling and stuff like that too and uh just trying to help keep ourselves afloat by putting these up for like five dollar rentals you have like 48 hours to watch it and so far we've released the best in show reunion that was the first one we did which has almost the entire cast yeah i mean i was i was at that one actually and i'm looking forward to watching it again because my wife and i got there late and ended up in the nosebleed section at the castro 
And even with our iPhones set to 10 times zoom, everyone was incredibly blurry on stage. So that'll be, that'll be a great one to rewatch. Yeah, that's really good. So we decided to start with that one and we just released the airplane 40th anniversary reunion with, uh, it's the first public one Julie Haggerty's ever done. So yeah, that, was that was awesome. pretty cool. Um, we have some lined up with like, uh, the George Wallace tribute with Patton Oswald, um, an uptown showdown debate, which is really funny, which has like people like Michael Ian black and a partner on Sherla and Joe Firestone and Dave Hill, um, Michael Showalter. It's uh, those are great. We have a yeah. bunch of other things in the works that are approved that we're going to start rolling out slowly. I don't really want to jinx them now, but there's some really yeah. good stuff coming out. And, um, it's just a chance to take a look at these things that, you know, are, we're very much a one-time thing that, just lived in the room and now we have a chance to kind of like let everybody check it out and in the hopes of raising a little bit of money to help everybody while this stuff shuts us down oh for sure and i think it's so cool to not only uh experience events like this like if you didn't live in the san francisco bay area or you weren't even aware that these events were there uh you now get a chance to kind of relive those and to to check them out and a lot of these events like you mentioned are kind of once in a lifetime where a cast and crew will kind of get back together and reunite and some of these people haven't seen each other in decades so it's just so cool to kind of capture that energy and to uh to actually preserve that on video Totally. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to do it, and I hope people will check them out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you know if there will ever be a time where, uh, instead of renting, that there will be an option to download to own, like uh, what Rift Tracks does? Um, at this point, no. It's more so that I think a lot of the talent are like into being out there for a little bit, but don't want it to be like out there forever. But gotcha. um, but it's possible. I don't know. At this point, they're just rentals, but we may visit it as a a download to own thing at a certain point. Yeah, because I, as a curator myself, I love to be able to to own things and actually get them. I mean, I I love some of the Rift Tracks uh, events throughout the years, and they've been great because they put out. I think it's now four uh, different Sketchfest uh, events that you can buy on their website and whatnot. Uh, so it's just so cool because uh, Sketchfest has been around for you know coming up on twenty years, and I've only been able to partake in about three to four years of it. So there's this huge amount of amazing events that have transpired that I wasn't able to partake in. Um, so it's just so cool to be able to kind of you know be able to experience some of that virtually. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I never thought we'd do anything with these, but the fact that we're going to be able to is pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of Sketchfest, over the years, can you tell me what some of your favorite events? have been anything that's uh, been a highlight for you oh man there's so much stuff but um one of the things that pops into my head is uh we did this wet hot american summer kind of live radio play which had almost the entire original cast at it um where they basically read it on stage um but we kind of had blocking people moving in and out and narrator and stuff and for the people Uh, that couldn't couldn't be there we had kind of like celebrity understudies and they weren't announced so People didn't mm. know that, like, we didn't have David Hyde Pierce, but David Cross played his part. Like, things like that. Yeah. Like, Andy Richter popped in to do the Ju- Judah Freelander role at the very end. Nice. Just stuff like that. So it was pretty massive, and the amount of people on it was insane. And I remember we were backstage, and Michael Showalter said to us, man, do you realize if a bomb went off here, how much of a loss it would be to comedy? Yeah. Because there was, there was, there was, you know, at least, like, 50, 60, like, big-time comic minds in that room so yeah definitely that one and we've had a lot of a lot of our heroes in you know for tributes and stuff like we had carol burnett last year which was pretty amazing and yeah it was so cool um, kids in the hall throughout the years have always been huge for me so 
Yeah, it's been crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's just an incredible lineup of, of people that you had over the years. And if you go online, you can see all the previous lineups there. And it really makes me uh, upset that I didn't go to college in San Francisco, uh, which would have been 2010 to 2014, uh, because it would have allowed me to go to all of these different events that at the time I was only, you know, virtually kind of aware of it. Um, but actually having a, a chance to go to them uh, would have just been absolutely incredible. Uh, one of the ones I was thinking of you mentioned earlier was the uh, 2012 one with uh, Gary Shandling and Alan Zweibel. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy that you were able to, to be able to have a conversation with him just a couple of years before he passed. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, every year it feels like we have to, not have to, but we dedicate the festival to a couple of amazing people we've lost. Um, and looking back, it's, you know, we had Gene Wilder, we've had... Uh, Tom Davis, like shortly before he passed, Ricky Jay. Yeah, there was that Van Dyke Parks he was talking with. Yeah, was so yeah, good. like that thing was crazy. Um, I mean, you see, Robin Williams has been a big supporter of the festival, and so that was that was tough. Um, but yeah, it, it, looking back on these things that we've been able to do, it's been pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's incredible, and I, what I love most about it is it really does celebrate the community of comedy. Uh, and you can tell that that people there are inspired by the other comedians on stage, and there's this camaraderie that you see come through uh, as people come to San Francisco for this festival. And I think it, it's an energy that, that the audience feeds off of. Thanks, man. Yeah, we love it. Got it still going. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I do want to talk a little bit about your movie poster collection because I see it on Instagram a lot, and you've got quite a few of them. Um, I know you had mentioned earlier kind of picking them up back in the day at the video store. Um, how do you obtain your, your posters these days? Do you go on eBay? How do you uh, you know keep them in your room? Tell me all about it. Yeah, so basically, like, I only have some of them up, um, most of the ones that have been signed throughout the years, but... I uh, I've, I have tons. I've always have. I've kind of collected them, mostly from eBay and other things too throughout the years. But I realized that like I'm never going to be able to put these up. They're just sitting in a closet. So I started photographing all of them and just posting them on socials periodically. It's kind of a way of hanging them up in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't order them as much anymore, but I still do sometimes. I'll get them on eBay or wherever else I find them. I mostly love the non-US ones with, the, with alternate titles and artwork and stuff. But yeah. Um, and most of the stuff I have is like, you know, pre-1990 because that's kind of like posters kind of sucked after that. I mean, they're fine, but they're not what they were. Um, oh, totally. They kind of was were one look for everything and pretty slick and didn't have as much personality as the old ones do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've just always kind of collected them because I just love them. And, uh, you know, they're not going to get up. So that was kind of my way of putting them up. There. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, I've seen some posters in your collection on your Instagram that I didn't even know existed uh, just based on the fact that it was like a Japanese import or you'll find one from Germany or something like that. And that to me is just so interesting to see how a different part of the, uh, different part of the world saw that movie um, because it was framed differently for them. You know, it had different images, different words attached to it. Um, ultimately it was the same movie, but it may have been marketed to them uh, very differently. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy if you think I'm in my office right now and I'm looking around at some of the ones that are up and I have like, these two Australian day bills, one for better off dead and one for one crazy summer that are next to each other. And they're signed by everybody. Cause I know all those guys, but the one crazy summer one, it's a big, like drawing a Bobcat Goldthwait's head in the sand with <laughs> like a featuring Bobcat police Academy Goldthwait. Like that was their <laughs> way of pushing it because I guess, you know, that resonated in Australia. So like, that's what they're going to focus on. That's and like so airplane, funny. airplane was called flying high in most other countries. It wasn't air, airplane. So like, hmm. if you get an, 
alternate poster of that. That's what that's called. And um, yeah, uh, uh, Adventures in Babysitting in Australia was a night on the town because <laughs> they don't have babysitters; they have all pairs. So it made no sense. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that that kind of stuff. Um, Howard the Duck in Australia was just Howard. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's just interesting to look at that stuff and the alternate artwork and stuff has always just been amazing to me. Yeah, it's it's so cool and I think the art of the movie poster is somewhat lost in this generation just based on the fact that uh, movie posters themselves, like you mentioned, uh, after a certain time, tended to kind of suck. And I think it was because they've been less drawn by artists and more drawn by the company, almost. Like, they're created as uh, almost a formula. Um, there's actually YouTube videos you can watch that really do a great job of breaking down what has changed in movie posters. Um, but specifically, they've found that certain movie posters... Uh, are kind of becoming motifs almost, like certain themes. And you'll see that these themes get repeated over and over again. Um, one of the most egregious as of late has been the combination of the blue and orange. Uh, blue and orange as colors are you know very contrasting, and so a lot of movie posters use blue and orange uh, to an extensive degree uh, that it really kind of washes out some of the other colors that may have been used prior to that. Um, and I think also movie posters have shifted a little bit um, because they used to be these very uh, intricately laid out pieces of artwork that you would look at up close. Uh, but now movie posters, if you're viewing them on Netflix or iTunes or what have you, they're almost to be viewed at a distance. So you definitely see more images and less text. And it's kind of shifted away from some of the more intricate designs that you would have seen on, on earlier movie posters. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely think it was more... There's a lot more text-based stuff. It goes to the same thing for the trailers, too. Like, oh, back yeah. in the day, trailers were like, you know, Bob Smith was an accountant, but he had a crazy weekend. Like, they explain everything to you. It was a lot of voiceover. Yeah. Now there's, like, no voiceover on trailers. If there is, it's in a world where it's that guy. But yep. for the most for the most part, it's just, like, a collection of images and sound and just give you the feel of it. Um, or they just show you fucking every clip from it, you know, the whole movie. But – yeah. Um, it's less about like they're not trying to sell it they're trying to sell a feel and less about really giving you an idea what the movie is half the time i just always love to look back if, if ever i see dvds that have like the original trailers for old movies i always like to watch them because they're always so different and fascinating and they would get laughed at now like those yeah. kinds of things audiences would be like what the fuck is this but i loved it it's really interesting to me because i actually i'm of the same opinion i love to watch those old trailers and just to see uh, how the movie was marketed at the time. And I think that some of these trailers really give you a good insight into kind of society and culture, uh, almost from a, you know, anthropologic standpoint, um, specifically when you, you can go on YouTube and watch, you know, eighties and nineties commercials. They got huge compilations of that sort of stuff. And I think you can kind of tell a lot about, uh, you know, society or culture from the commercials. There's certain artistic design choices and certain themes that you'll see over and over again. And I think, you know, for somebody who didn't grow up in the seventies or eighties, I can go back and I can watch, movie trailers from that time and really get a sense of, of kind of how people related to, to the media at the time. And I think it's kind of an interesting time capsule. Yeah, totally. Very different. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's wild to see, uh, you know, kind of how that stuff has, has changed a bit. 
but uh, I don't know. I think that we're living in a time where sometimes it's better to not see trailers. I mean, I'm of the opinion, I like to go into a lot of movies blind whenever possible, um, just to kind of let the movie unfold before my eyes without knowing too much before going into it. I think that's definitely the best way to enjoy a movie. I mean, the less you know. It's hard to do that because odds are you're not going to know about it. And half the time with these movies, like, I'll have to watch the trailer to have any idea what the fuck it is. But... Uh, I remember I saw Notting Hill in the theater not knowing anything about it because I hadn't seen the trailer. And I was like, oh, you can't mm-hmm. Robert? Sure. And, like, absolutely loving it. And I was like, I think it was better that I had absolutely no clue where this was going. Totally. I think there's something uh, magical about that, about, you know, co- going on this cinematic adventure and just kind of letting the story unfold. And, you know, sometimes you're like, is this a drama? Is this a comedy? Is it a mystery? Like, you just, it's tough to read into the tone sometimes. Uh, you know, it's just, it's fun to just go in and just let it happen. Totally. Hundred percent. Yeah. So uh, switching gears a little bit, I know you've had a chance to kind of browse the collection on Plex. I do apologize that it has to be over Plex because they uh, actually overwrite my metadata with their metadata, so it becomes kind of a mess. It makes it look pretty sloppy and illegitimate. But uh, I, I hopefully you're at least able to kind of browse things enough to get a sense of what's going on. Yeah, definitely. I definitely checked it out. It's pretty pretty cool, extensive collection. Um, be interesting to see as if you start to back catalog it more. It feels like it's a lot of two thousands up, but there's a lot of great stuff on there. Yeah, so majority of my stuff is actually from the twentieth century. I've got about fifty six hundred films or so uh, from before two thousand. Um, so depending on how it's kind of orchestrated in uh, Plex, there you can actually dive in. I mean, I personally love films from you know seventies, eighties, nineties, things like that. Um, so I know that there's a lot of stuff that has, like you were talking about before, has kind of fallen between the cracks of time. Uh, some of this stuff is you know hard to come by because maybe it was on HBO in the eighties, but maybe it never really got a DVD or or sometimes even a Blu-ray release. There's a handful of of things that I. Can think of that have never actually seen releases on physical media, uh, so actually getting those can be can be really tough. Oh yeah, there's tons of stuff out there that like you know we'll never see the light of day, or like you know my favorite movie, Searching for Bobby Fisher, is kind of a, was on DVD once. It's out of print. You can get it from like Warner Archive. I have it, but it's never been on Blu-ray. It should be. It's a beautiful movie. Um, there's tons of movies out there that like I will have the full screen DVD of that I will just wait for them to release it widescreen. Hopefully one day they will, and then I'll replace it when they do, um, just to see it yeah. that way. But there definitely are like bootleg copies of people that like shot shit off of HBO or like Short Time, which is this Dabney Coleman comedy I like a lot. Like that's never been officially mm-hmm. released anything but VHS. So like I have a bootleg copy of that, and obviously Song of the South because that'll never see the light of the day. Um, yeah, that's that's off of Disney like Japanese Blu-ray I think copied or something. So I have that. Like, um, they're definitely hard to get a lot of that stuff out there because there's just so much and people forget. Oh, there's totally. A, there's an audience for everything for sure. And in fact, I actually have uh, both Searching for Bobby Fisher and Song of the South uh, in HD. Uh, so I was able to, to find that online, and that was the thing is because I think. It's, it is important to support whenever possible and to purchase something legally. Um, but what's really frustrating is that sometimes you want to support something and you want to purchase something legally, and that option just simply does not exist. And so sometimes you kind of have to blur the lines a little bit in order to find the thing that you're looking for. And it's really frustrating how not 
customer-centric some of these companies are. Um, so when there is a, a release of something on Blu-ray, sometimes it's European only, and you have to import it because they didn't think it was going to sell very well in the U.S. So it's kind of crazy how the, the whole media landscape is laid out. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially even back at the video store days, I would, like, order import DVDs of things that weren't available over here when you run them out. Like, I remember we got Battle Royale early as an import, mm-hmm. and that, like, made a ton of money for us. But, like, you couldn't order it here. It wasn't available. And I was like, yeah. I just got it as like a an all region like Japanese import of it. Um, and we do that for things like it's yeah. I mean, there are definitely movies that have never been out stateside that like I don't mind owning like a semi illegal copy of something because like look, you put it out here, I'll buy it. But mm-hmm. until you do, there's not a reason for me to not be able to see this movie. Totally. And that's the, the crazy thing. So there's the, the concept of windowing, which you may have heard of. Basically, when a movie gets released in the theater and then gets withdrawn from public distribution, uh, basically it's artificially constraining the supply to build up the demand. And uh, windowing has been a practice that studios have used for a very long time. And it's unique to films. Um, specifically because if you were to you know, record an album, you were an artist or something, it'd be unheard of if you just released it for two weeks and then you say, you know what, that album I made, I'm going to withdraw it from circulation. You're going to have to wait for nine more months before you can listen to this album again, then I'm going to release it again. I mean, it seems like such an archaic practice, but you definitely see it a lot with the studios, which is why it's so interesting in this age of COVID-19 that Disney and some of the other studios are kind of removing those windows and releasing it on video on demand and uh, you know you look at just the other day Hamilton uh, was supposed to be uh, released in October of 2021 and Disney now says Hamilton will go on Disney Plus in July so it's very clear that I mean Cynic might say they're cash hungry and they need to uh, you know get stuff out there um, but I do find it interesting that in this time those windows are starting to shorten oh yeah they don't know what to do with everything right now because like they I think they're all starting to realize that theater experience is dead for a little while. Even if it reopens, it's going to not be what they need it to be. Like, you're not going to make break any box office records opening something at a 30% capacity theater. So yeah. it's just going to be like the tentpole movies they got, they're pushing back for a long time. I and mean, then full years and some of those things. But other things that they realize aren't necessarily going to be as big anyways, they have captive audiences at home. So they might as well release them there and try to get, you know, some interest that way yeah oh totally and i think that that's i mean it's important to be able to release the content um but i'm also a big fan of actually seeing some movies in a big theater uh you know whenever possible on a big screen so i always kind of have this dilemma when a movie comes out uh you know on streaming and it is available in theaters um you know do i watch it at home or do i get a chance to go to the theater um, you know, when, when Irishman came out, uh, I went actually to the Castro here and Scorsese came out for it and I got there a little late. And so I was the very, very front at the very, very left. And so I got a great view to see Scorsese do the introduction and kind of talk about the movie. Um, uh, but then when the movie was actually screening, it was very distorted. You know, I was seeing basically kind of a, a sideways view of the, the image And, you know, I couldn't justify sitting through the whole thing knowing that in two weeks it's going to be on Netflix and I can see it, you know, in without the distortion on there. Uh, So I feel bad, but I ended up having to leave partway through um, just based on the fact that it was just such a distorted view. It wasn't a great experience, but I'm all for seeing movies in the theater whenever I can. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I would have left, too. Like, I can't. 
my kind of rule when I see movies is I need to be able to see the the shape of the screen, so to speak. If I'm if yeah. I can't see the entire screen without moving my my eyes, then like I feel like I'm too close. I need to be able to see the whole picture in a way that makes sense. Um, and I think the last thing I actually watched really close, and it's the last thing I ever did, and it's I didn't really have a choice. Is I went to a sneak screening of Kick Ass like a year before it came out. Oh yeah. Um, like on the promenade kind of thing, but like it was mostly full of like industry folks or whatever. So I got in, but I was in the front row. And I don't like mm. to watch anything that way ever. But yeah. I was like, it's going to be a full year before this movie comes out. And I'm really interested. Yeah. In it, so I'm going to try it. So I watched it that way and it was fine. But like, and I still enjoyed it. But I was like, I can't do that again. Like, I'm never going to do that again. How was your neck the next morning? Uh, I hurt a little bit. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had experiences like that too, where, you know, sometimes you kind of. You know, that's the only seat available or, you know, you kind of have to take what you get. But it's always great to be able to watch something from from further back where you can really get a chance to experience it. Um, At the Exploratorium here in San Francisco, they have different themed nights every Thursday. And uh, one of the first Thursdays I moved here, they had a theme on something called transmutive cinema. And I had never really been familiar with it, but apparently it is cinema that is projected onto non-traditional screen types. Uh, So the first film that we watched was actually moved around. The projector would project across the room. So they would move the projector onto different surfaces as the film was going. And with traditional cinema, you want to forget about the fact that you're watching a movie. But with transmutive cinema, they want you to remember that you are in a room watching a movie. Uh, So it's a very different feel. They even had at a point where they projected it onto paper and a woman broke through the paper in the room. They they showed another film on a sphere, so they had two projectors, and you were encouraged to walk around the room and look at the sphere as uh, the the cinema was being projected upon it. So it's it's really interesting because you'll get different types of of projection styles, and it's not really something that you can reproduce at home. Uh, so it's interesting to be able to you know witness something like that. Yeah, that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean the, the films themselves were of a very experimental nature, so non narrative and just kind of very out there, but. But the experience itself was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, that sounds rad. Yeah. So um, looking forward into uh, the future here, I know that uh, we, we talked a little bit about kind of planning for, for Sketchfest and whatnot. Um, but what do you see yourself uh, up to in these next coming months? I mean, you're in L.A., so I just saw the extension might be another three months for you. Are you going to be able to stay sane during that time? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's – I think it will be kind of – yeah, it's going to be like till end of July, August before things are relatively normal-ish here. But even then, it won't be normal. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's I work from home normally, so I'm not – this isn't unusual for me. So yeah. um, so that doesn't bother me. But, you know, I miss being able to go out, get a bite to eat, friends and stuff. But um, in the meantime, like I've actually stayed busier than I'd like to be. Like I feel like the universe has told us we can hit pause on everything, and I don't feel like I've been able to do that, which kind of bugs me. Yeah. Um, I would much rather take this time to just like I have nothing on my calendar. Let's just watch three movies, or let's go for a walk, or like whatever. Like I don't. I've been like doing a lot digitally. I, like it feels like I have Zoom invites up my ass, and I'm tired yeah. of those. Like I don't find I I don't like doing the Zoom things because I feel like it's just a reminder that things aren't normal, and yeah. I just find them taxing, and I don't really get much out of them. Um, but I've been doing a lot of like virtual shows, like from the improv teams I have at Westside Comedy Theater. 
Um, like this Friday, we have a Pretty Pretty Pony show with uh, Stephen Tobolowski doing our monologues. Um, yeah, I just saw did. that. Actually, I was about to uh, ask you about that. Yeah, so it'll be super fun. We did one last month with Tony Hale, so we're kind of gotten used to how to do the do it via Zoom, and they stream it on Twitch. Um, but we've kind of figured out how to do it, and it's fun. Um, so I've been doing that a lot, and like I direct a sketch team at West Side Sketch uh, called um, Grifter. We used to be called West Side Sketch Co. Um, so I direct that, and we've been doing digit, like online shows, with, like filmed videos and stuff. Um, and just, yeah, kind of staying busy, Sketchfest, obviously trying to get all those archival videos out, and I do a lot of the editing on them, so um, I'll be making, I make trailers and the, you know, poster images and stuff, so I, I'm kind of the graphic department for the festival. <laughs> nice. Because, um, you know, try to do as much stuff as we can ourselves in order to make it so we can do this thing. Um, yeah. So I've been busy with that a lot, and um, yeah, I just feel like I'm, like, I look at my calendar and there's too much on it, so I think I'm going to start trying to, like, take a step back from a lot of this stuff right now and just try to like kind of relax into this a little bit more because it's like, I feel like there's the first week of this. People are like, what's up? And we didn't do much. And then immediately it was like, Hey, everything you did before, but now on zoom, which yeah. I don't, which I don't love. Um, so yeah. So it's just a matter of like doing the things I need to do, but also just trying to relax here because I, my whole life has been appointments. Like I'm very, I stay busy. I take on a lot and I don't say no to enough things. And so I, I'm constantly like, doing stuff which is good because i have a hard time just relaxing in the downtime but i feel like the universe mm-hmm. has said hey now's your time to figure out how to do that so yeah. um, i'm gonna try to embrace that a little bit more than i have yeah it's it's definitely a unique time that we're kind of in and especially when we do have the luxury of being able to to stay safe at home and to have that freedom of time um, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because you really are the master of your own domain in that sense. And you kind of have to figure out exactly how you want to utilize that time, uh, whether you are super productive or as other people are, you know, just sitting around watching Netflix and their PJs all day. Uh, so you kind of get the option to be as productive or as inefficient as you'd like. Um, but specifically looking at, you know, kind of your schedule and, and how you like to relax. I mean, what are some things that you do to kind of cut back and relax or are movies that for you or are you, are you actively watching them? So it's almost like a chore. Uh, movies are a lot of that for me. Um, I play a lot of softball or I did until this happened. Um, so that's kind of how I would get mostly my exercise. I don't have, I don't love going to a gym. I get really bored. Like I need to be kind of engaged and softball is really fun. I've gotten really good at it. And so I I would play on like Sundays. I'd play like on three teams, Saturday on a team, Tuesday on a team. So like I would constantly do that. That was a big thing for me to kind of like, what I like about it is I would just, my head would be in the game, so to speak. And everything else I was stressing out about, I would just forget for a couple hours. Whereas mm-hmm. everything else I do, like I would be like, I'd be watching a movie, but half the time I'd be like, I really need to do this thing for blah, blah, blah. And I'd feel guilty about it, but I didn't really have that problem when I was playing softball because I was just playing softball and enjoying it and having fun and not thinking about the other things. So I definitely miss that probably more than anything else right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's going to be interesting to see when we go back, what things will be the same and which things will change. And, uh, you know, sports have always been, you know, pretty close contact. I mean, softball, at least you got a little bit of distance there. Um, So it'll be interesting to see when we get the green light to go back, uh, you know, what softball will look like. Hopefully things can go back to normal uh, relatively soon, but it it might be a little bit of time before that happens. Yeah, for sure. They kept thinking that, like, (laughs) my summer team was about to start back up, like, in 
beginning of June and then um, actually beginning of May. And then they kept pushing it a couple weeks and then being like, um, okay, maybe next month. Uh, okay, maybe this date. So, like, who knows? But yeah. uh, I've already, you know, kind of – I've gotten okay with the fact that it's probably not going to happen until the fall if I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so definitely I think I missed that the most. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you been at least able to stay in touch with friends and family? Uh, hopefully not too much over Zoom, but maybe over other things? Yeah, definitely. You know, we've played games online and stuff with friends, and, like, I've had a lot of, like, Zoom meetings with the various creative teams that I'm on for things, and, you know, my family and stuff. I've had a couple of Zoom calls with them, but I've also kind of just said, can we just talk on the normal phone? Like, I don't yeah. really need to see. So periodically, like, we'll go back and forth between them, but... Yeah, definitely staying in touch with people. I just kind of like, I don't know. I've I've been kind of the thing of like, I'll I'll still be here. We'll get in touch. But I would rather just kind of like, honestly, just kind of like take this time to kind of be more reflective and be kind of not connected to people as much as I usually Mm -hmm. do. Yeah, because I think you've got that luxury where, you know, yeah, people can reach you when they need to. But I also feel like, you know, a lot of people are in the same boat. Uh, as we all are, which is that, you know, you get to things when you get to things. Uh, you mentioned before how frustrated some people can be when you don't respond to a text message quick enough. And I think that hopefully in this time that's eased up a little bit, uh, maybe less so because people know that you're at home and know that you're not doing much. But I think that it's given us a little bit of time to hit that pause button and to reflect and um, to get time to decompress a little bit. Yeah, totally. And I'm, that's what I'm trying to embrace from this point on because I feel like I haven't yet. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, definitely. Well, it sounds like you're trying, which is the important part. You know, it just takes a step in the right direction, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, so before we let you go, I do just want to ask a couple other questions, specifically just about some lessons you've learned along the way, because you've had such a wide variety of different things that you've had a chance to do over the years. Um, so I'd love it if you could share with our listeners, you know, we'll start with uh, acting first. Um, so what are some lessons that you learned about, you know, the whole world of acting? Honestly, like one of the things I learned about acting in general is if you want a part, like don't obsess about it. You like I found that like I would book more and I would do better when I didn't give a shit anymore. I know that sounds <laughs> weird, but like I would still do the work. I, I'm not. I'm not ill-prepared. I don't mean that. Like, I still know the lines, and I go in and, like, you know, I, I, I've, since I have a background in acting and in, uh, improv, like, I would kind of learn how to, like, set yourself apart in a room by sometimes, you know, adding a button, you know, at the end of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do that more in commercials than you can in, like, TV scripts. But, like, if you get past the dialogue, sometimes, like, you could add a little flourish or whatever. And some casting people are like, all right, do it again. Don't do that. Some people are like, great. Yeah. And they put that in the room and it gets you apart. So I would say, like, find a way to stand out and just don't – just know that, like, it's a crazy numbers game. It's not you. It's not mm-hmm. you. That's what it is. It's like only one person is going to get this part. Half the time it's like you could be the – best actor for the part but you're not going to get it because you don't have the look that they need for this thing or Mm -hmm. somebody's nephew's getting the part or whatever like it's just don't you can't take it personally you just have to keep doing it the percentages eventually will come in your way or if they don't do something else like that's the main thing with acting is like if it's not your passion don't pursue it that's stupid Mm -hmm. you do community theater and stuff if you want to get up on stage and scratch that itch but if if you can do anything else do something else that's yeah. what I would say about acting because it's <laughs> yeah. not an easy thing. 
That's good. I like that a lot. Uh, it definitely speaks to kind of, you know, your passion versus your skill and kind of finding a way to, to make a character your own uh, without necessarily, you know, putting too much pressure on yourself about that. Uh, so that's great advice for sure. Um, how about improv? Because I know you studied improv a lot. Uh, what are some things that you learned about improv over the years? Um, you know, everybody has different philosophies when it comes to improv. I love it because for me, it's just like, just show up and have fun. I think the main thing is it should be fun. Don't make it work. The second mm-hmm. it starts to be work, then it's not good. Don't be in your head. Just go out there and respond to things. Um, listen. It's it's all about like listening and reacting. Um, and like I'm pretty quick. I think that's one of the reasons I've been good at it as long as I have is I'm very good at like – like they call me the band-aid in a lot because I'm good at like coming out and like giving context to a scene or fixing a scene or putting a button on a scene to kind of help – move the show forward and it's yeah it's just really fun so like it's for me it's an outlet of creativity that doesn't require the time that others do it's not like stand up Mm -hmm. where you have to go and work material and work it and work it and bomb a bit to get it good or whatever it's more so like you just show up you create something in the room with those people and then it's never seen again like it's just that is what that is um and that's kind of what i like about it it's fleeting Mm -hmm. It's not something you're going to see over and over and over again. I, I, just, I just enjoy that. Yeah, that's what makes improv such a unique art form is because it, I don't want to use the word disposable in a negative sense, but it definitely is kind of disposable. It's, it's a flash in the pan. If you weren't there, you didn't get to experience it. Um, so that's one of the most interesting things about improv is that you really you did have to be there. Right. So it's uh, yeah, it's in the moment, which is really cool. Yeah, it's one of the only art forms that doesn't translate on video very well at all. Yeah, has to have to have been in the room. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, Now, this podcast is is in its infancy. You know, we're only on our third episode, but you've obviously, you know, had about seven year run of your podcast. Uh, Do you have any podcasting lessons you'd like to share? Yeah, there's a few things. One, it's like make it sound good. That's that's a big thing because people, especially now, like they will turn off immediately if it's like the mix is terrible or people are breaking up or you know whatever it needs to sound okay so like invest yourself in like a little mixing board if you're doing it live in a room with people you can do that with like sure microphones uh, you know rec- record on a couple different things get a backup recorder going that's huge because like we would we did pop my culture we would record on two laptops and also have a zoom on the desk because mm-hmm. garage band can be temperamental they can just decide mm-hmm. sometimes to be like right error and just everything's gone and yeah. I've had that happen where, like, my computers quit and Vanessa's didn't. So it was fine. And we had the Zoom. But if you mm-hmm. just run mine, it could have died. And I would have yeah. been like, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say make it sound good and find something. There are so many podcasts out there. You need a, you need an angle. You need a hook. Mm-hmm. So find something that's going to make you, like, stand out in a sea of similar things. Um, and it can be niche stuff. Like, I always thought it had to be kind of broad initially, but it really doesn't. I mean, things are, like very specific that are huge you know Mm -hmm. like true crime stuff or like just shows about like this is a podcast about this tv show or this movie or this genre Mm -hmm. of movies or whatever it can be general but just have a hook to it and you know be knowledgeable about what you're talking about yeah (laughs) or make it entertaining like it's those things have had to happen because this is hard to stand out so find something produce it well and have fun doing it. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And I think, uh, you know, when I was starting this podcast, 
um, Apple Podcasts announced that they are, there are now over one million podcasts, not just podcast episodes, but just flat out podcasts in general. Uh, so now more than ever, it's harder and harder to actually break through and kind of find an audience. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm trying to figure out, you know, specifically just starting a podcast in 2020. Uh, you know, who is my audience? Uh, you know, what kind of guests can I get? That sort of stuff. So it's always great to get advice from somebody who's uh, been around the block a few times with the uh, hosting a podcast. Yeah, man. It's just about like be passionate about it, have fun with it, and make it not sound terrible. Oh, and don't 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 eat. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. That'll come through in the microphone real quick. I've, I have learned that lesson, so don't do that. People get very yeah, angry. The, the first episode I did with uh, Chris Eigenman, I had a glass of water next to me, and I didn't realize how loudly the glass was clinking with ice every time I took a sip. So I uh, definitely learned that lesson the first time. And the other thing I would say is listen back to your episodes, at least at first, because listen to yourself, and you'll realize vocal patterns you fall into a lot and things yeah. that annoy you. And then if you become cognizant of it, you won't do it as much. I definitely, when I was hosting, would say like a lot because it would be mm-hmm. like my pause word. So when I was trying to f- put my thoughts together, I would sit there and then say something like, it's like when you blah, 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 or like, but that would be my pause. That's how I would get into things. So then I tried when I realized that and I heard it all the time and I'm like, am I a valley girl? Um, I decided that like maybe and i'm saying it now but maybe i would just try to stop and think and then talk without Mm -hmm. necessarily going right into the thought before i had it like having a pause is okay it's not people won't listen not listen because you're taking a second Mm -hmm. and some of the best speakers take their time you know they have you they're listening so if you take your time Put your thoughts together; they'll stay with you. That's it. Yeah, it's it's something I struggle with uh, too, just based on the fact that you know you want the conversation to keep going and you want to you know be quick witted and have a response right there. Um, but over the years, I've learned this acronym: Wait. Why am I talking? So it's one of those things you just sit, you just take a breather. And formulate that response because it doesn't always have to be like an Aaron Sorkin movie where, you know, the characters are going back and forth with witty banter that, you know, was cooked up in a screenwriter's room for six months. Uh, it's great to be able to to be able to take a minute and to just formulate a good response uh, before you go back into it. Plus, podcasts don't work as walk and talks very well. So, yeah, yeah, take totally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's awesome. Super cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Cole. This has been absolutely incredible. I really appreciate you taking some time and uh, getting to chat here on the podcast. Um, I would like to see if there's anything you'd like to plug, social media, anything like that. Sure. Um, Obviously, check out the Sketchfest archive stuff. If you go to sfsketchfest.com slash watch, they'll all be there. Um, you can also follow them, uh, us on social media. It's usually, it's either at SF sketches or at SF underscore Sketchfest on the various things. Me personally, um, you can find me on Instagram at Stratton Cole and Twitter is at Cole Stratton. I'm pretty active on both of those things. Probably more active on Instagram nowadays, but I definitely was more active on Twitter. I'm verified. That means nothing. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so you can find me those things. I also have a website, colestratton.com, which I update sometimes. Um, so it's relatively up to date. 
Yeah. So yeah, you can find me on those things. Fantastic. That is awesome. Well, thanks again for coming by. I really appreciate it. This has been really cool talking with you. You've been uh, so influential in uh, in founding Sketchfest and, and getting this off the ground. And it's been an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. up my conversation with Cole Stratton. Thanks again to Cole for coming on the show and talking shop. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to check out the backlog of Pop My Culture podcast episodes, the links to which I'll include in the show notes. Don't forget to check out the ongoing selection of SF Sketchfest shows available to rent on the SF Sketchfest website. These rentals help keep Sketchfest afloat during these uncertain times. This episode was edited by Brian Hamilton. He helped me tremendously when I had too much on my plate. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, at underscore Brian Hamilton. The tracks on today's show were HBO by Don't Be Square, Floppy by Casting, and Pool Furniture, also by Don't Be Square, all of which will be linked to in the show notes. If you have any show follow-up, you can reach me on Twitter or Instagram, at AWOL, that's at A-W-O-E-L-L, Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for more metamodernism to come.